Американская фирма Transceptor Technology приступила к производству компьютеров «Персональный спутник». Hello and welcome to Third Degree Burn, a podcast looking at all things John Byrne. Hi, the voice you're listening to now is me, Tim Elliott. But during our first recording, I neglected to introduce myself, so allow myself to introduce myself. My name is Tim Elliott, and I'll back to the show. Tonight, I am joined by my fellow burnout, Ryan Hughes. Hello, hello. And tonight we will be looking at Avengers issues 164 to 166. But before we jump into our books, since this is our inaugural podcast, we're going to peel the curtain back a little bit and give you a little bit of information about ourselves. So now I'm going to turn it over to Brian. Hi, my name is Brian Hughes, and uh, I work in IT for a large mail-order pharmacy, and that's not really important. What's important is I'm a comic book person. I'm a comic book geek. My comic book origin is very interesting. At the age of four, I had had to get an operation when I was very, very young and I got put into a hospital and I couldn't get out of bed. And um, while I was there and all the other kids, I was was in a a children's ward and there were a lot of other kids in there and they're all playing around and having fun. And uh, I wasn't. (laughs) But while I was sitting there, uh, I saw over in this cabinet, they had all sorts of toys and games and stuff. And one of the things they had there had the Batman symbol on it, which I knew Batman from the TV show, the Adam West TV show. This is in 1970. And... um, so I asked uh, to see that, and they brought me the comic book over, and it was Batman 201, issue 201. And I had no idea how to read it, but I sat there and I poured over the pages of that uh, while I was there, and I had my mom read it to me while I was, you know, in there. And when I left, they let me take it, they let me keep it. And uh, I made sure by the end of the year that my mom had taught me to read so I could read it. And so they kept buying me comic books from there. I mean, comic books really taught me how to read uh, even conversationally. So when I was in first grade, I was reading at the same level I kind of read at now. I was already, you know, that 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 adept at it. So comic books really had a huge part in my education. And there'll be words that I use that you can only learn from comic books. Comic books don't teach you anything other than, you know, splash pages sell money, sell for good money. Right for the trade. And it takes, you know, six issues to, to tell what you can tell in one. I mean, they don't speak a whole lot. They don't give as much information now as they used to. You don't learn words like uh, sinew, which I learned in The Flash when I was a kid. But anyway, you know, be that as it's made, that's, that's really my comic book origin. I started reading comic books from the age of four. Now, when I was 10, I started going down to the store and buying them myself instead of letting my parents buy them. Because they would buy me Superman one day and then they'd buy me Richie Rich the next. You know, there was no rhyme or reason to it. And uh, when I was in my teens, my brother's best friend, a guy by the name of King Hoover, bought me, just gave me a handful of comic books for my birthday. And and, and some of these were like classics. There was an old Green Lantern in there uh, from the year I was born, from 1966. And then he also gave me uh, An Amazing Adventures, which was a reprint of the early, early X-Men with the blob. And then he gave me X-Men 132. And that was my very first burn book that, that uh, I remembered. And that sucked me in. I, at, at that point, I realized that it, it, that was when I realized that there were artists and writers that made the different books and it wasn't all the same people. 
And so that I started looking for particular artists and writers, and Burns specifically. And that's my comic book origin. Uh, very nice. My origin is not as uh, heartfelt. My, uh, I started much later in life. I didn't start collecting comics until I was 18 uh, from a, sending in a coupon off a Superpowers figure t- for a subscription to Green Lantern. My first book in the mail was uh, Green Lantern 187. That led to finding uh, our <clears throat> local comic shop in town, which led me to, of all things, to Marvel, which is odd that I started out with DC, but I gravitated to Marvel for some reason and to Spider-Man. And that led to uh, just me collecting on my own, going to conventions, uh, kind of becoming obsessed, like all, uh, but I, I did it late in life, so I was discovering everything. Uh, having grown up, I had comics growing up. I, I, I'm aware of and have memories of very specific comics of either just the embodying on a, on a trip or a vacation or just having them at a friend's house and reading them, but I never, uh, I never collected i never had a uh, my collecting was with gi joe and micronauts and things of that nature and then star wars came along and i became obsessed with special effects so for the next six years i wanted to be a special effects artist but wow so that's why uh i didn't get into comics but uh, my first burn book was actually a trade it's uh it's the trade of the phoenix saga oh yeah and because i was reading the x-men at the time but ramita jr was on the book and so i also, just as I got into, they reintroduced Phoenix in the Fantastic Four in the Burn Run, so I wanted to know more about this character. So I, I picked up the trade and just thought, wow, this is some amazing art. And that's where I got hooked on Burn. And he, like you, he was my first artist that I was aware of a name. Uh, and thanks to him, Terry Austin was the really only inker I was ever really aware of. And he was an artist that I would start, uh, I followed, because that's why I went to Superman, because of Burn. Because I followed him over there because I was not reading any DC at the time because I was all Marvel. So that's kind of my love affair with Byrne. Um, well, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, that 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 sounds pretty cool. Yeah, Again, I mean, you know, everybody's comic book stories, uh, it, origin is different. And, you know, there's different things that we grab onto. You talked about how you grabbed onto Spider-Man. And I can see that. Because you, when you started, you're at that age where, where you're looking for someone to identify with more than you're looking for an archetype. You're looking for someone that, that, that you sit there and you go, you know, hey, I have trouble just like that. Or I can identify with what he's going through. Or, gosh, I wish I had girls as good as looking as his. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I never. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. Uh, we have that kind of. I wasn't uh, worried about that. But, uh, yeah, I think Spider Man appealed to me because he, when you strip everything away, he always tried to do what was right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very admirable. And that's something everybody should strive for. So I think that's maybe why Spider-Man has always been my go-to um, hero. So much yeah, like Superman, but I mean, I think I, I admire Superman for the same for the same values. Yeah, but it's the it's the Todd McFarlane argument there. You know, in 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 Todd McFarlane tried to make the argument that Spawn's a greater hero than Superman because that every time Spawn used his powers, he became one step closer to eternal damnation. You know. From, from the devil, and that it doesn't cost Superman anything to use his powers, whereas characters like Spawn, or in, in, in this case, Spider-Man, he always used his abilities to do the right thing, and it always cost him. He was always late on his, his schoolwork. He was always late for Mary Jane or Aunt May or Gwen or whatever, 
or just, you know, being Spider-Man caused the death of Gwen Stacy. I mean, it, it, he tried to do the right thing, but it always cost him in the end. And that was the thing about Spider-Man that, you know, we sit there and, and you just identify with that because you know that you're going to do the right thing, but it's going to, it's going to cost you somehow somewhere. Yeah. And that, I think that stems to that you, you should always do the right thing no matter what, you know, yeah, it may cost you something. It may cost you, well, we usually don't have this. We don't obviously don't have the same problem as Spider-Man <laughs> has, but you, that's just something you should strive for that you should try to do the right thing even if it's not the easy thing. The easy thing and the right thing are never, usually ever the same. So I think that's, and that, and that that's why I don't think the, I don't, I don't buy into that Spawn argument. I don't. I well, Spawn, Spawn was a bad guy in the first place. I mean, he was a killer, cold-blooded killer. Yeah. And so for him, what, whatever you might say about his story, it's always one of redemption. It's always, if I keep doing the right thing, it just might, you know, be enough to, to redeem me, you know, in the eyes of the father, or however you want to put that. Yeah. That, that, I, that's, that's the way I always saw it. And so I didn't ever see the argument that McFarlane was making. Well, I haven't read Spawn in years, but it, uh, it seems to me he was, in the early issues, he was trying constantly to try to get back to, is it Wanda, his wife? I, I don't know her uh, name, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, he was always trying to get back to her. So and, there was some, there was a little bit of a selfish reason there that, you know, he wanted to get back uh, and be alive again, he, you know, he felt what happened to him was unjust, and I, I agree. But he wasn't a hundred percent altruistic about. Well, yes, every time I help somebody, I lose a little bit of my power, and I come closer. But I don't, I don't, okay, I don't I, buy that. Again, that's you know the the thoughts and feelings of Todd McFarlane laid bare. Um, you know, Todd's a great artist, but you know, in, in all other areas, I can't sit there and say he's an expert on what's good or bad. No, and he's not the he's he is a good artist. He's not the best writer. And and his art has, you know, as time has gone on, it's not necessarily aged well. Whereas you sit there and you look at the, the, the best burn art and that has aged well. Though oh, people oh. today you, you, you can't sell burn art to the, the, the kids that are that are buying comic books today, it's too compact, it's too straight. Everything today need, seems to need to be almost a little cartoony. I think they want it. I think they want a lot of the stuff these days to be very stylized. And right. Byrne is stylized in his his own way, but it's still a very clean. That's what I love about it. It's very clean, mm-hmm. precise. It's sharp. That's the best word I can come for. His work is just sharp and crisp, and at the same time, it's very dynamic. And it just. But everybody looks human. Right. And and everybody looks like like they should look. You know, as far as that goes. Now, when you get someone that's outside those lines, like Hammerhead or or whatever, he's going to draw them as they're supposed to be. But he keeps everybody and makes. And, and the funny thing is, he makes everything look good. And that means even when he's supposed to be drawing what you would call an ugly thing, ugly person or whatever, he still makes them look good. The, the hair is too right or, you know, everything is too nice. It's almost like it's too clean. Even when it's dirty, it looks good. Yeah. And that's, that's one of those things. It's, it's funny about his art, but in the same time, it's one of the reasons why we're drawn to it. If I, had one, if I only had really had one criticism of Byrne, it, was, it would be he never seemed to quite get the knack for drawing children. Children. Well, I, you know, and... I've seen this in so many different artists. I mean, you look at, at John Romita Jr., and at, at, you and I talked about this before, uh, before 
uh, John Romita Jr.'s artwork in, say, Kick-Ass, where he's drawing kids in high school and such. And, you know, it basically, it's got that kid aspect to it, but at the same time, it doesn't really look like kids look. True. And when, you know, Byrne was doing, drawing kids and Franklin Richards was the one that you saw the most, it just looked like a little man, you know, just a, almost a, a homunculus. Right. He was almost drawing a... Perfectly a little, proportional a little, person, person. a little person, you know. Yeah. Not not a, tr- a child. Because right. their arm, their, he would always draw them when their legs looked just too fat and too thick and their arms. So, but, but I think they came along later. His, his earlier, some of his earlier work was, was uh, not bad. I think it was when he later, uh, later his, uh, his children started looking, when he was doing Franklin Richards specifically, is what I'm thinking about, that he, they got a little deformed. I'm, that's not the word I want to use, but just not, not as realistic. Yeah, and it, natural looking. It, it's funny because when he did Fantastic Four, the first thing that he did was he took all the characters and brought them back to what they should be instead of what they became. Because if you looked at the previous Fantastic Four books, Reed Richards was this huge muscle-bound you know, character. And Johnny Storm was muscle-bound. I mean, basically, you could have taken the costume off of Johnny Storm and put Captain America's costume on it, and boom, there he is. Or Hank Pym, for that matter. Which, of course, is one of those downfalls of, of, of Byrne that we see these days or all along is that, you know, when you see a blonde man standing there, they have to announce who it is if they're, if they're in street clothes because you got to figure out if it's Steve Rogers or Hank Pym or, right. you know, any one of those guys. And, and the only one where he, he got away with getting it different was Johnny Storm because Johnny was thinner and his hair was always different because he always did his hair in kind of, uh, popular style at the time yeah he did I, I i think the look of a reed richards comes from that's a carryover carryover from from kirby mm-hmm. and it came the house style so everybody kind of drew uh reed as well he drew everybody as being uh more muscled and more defined that and i think even if you look at burns first work on ff he, oh yeah the early stuff yeah he kept that he still kept that look and it wasn't until much later that he drew reed as a more yeah, of a, a lanky, kind of a thin, he's, you know, not a really an athletically built guy. He's a, a scientist. scientist. Yeah, he's a scientist. Yeah. Well, and that's when he started his run and they let him have the control he wanted up to a point. True. Okay. Well, yeah, I think, um, I think what's important though, what we need to sit there and state within all this is that um, we're not here to debate the character of the man John Byrne and you know what people think of him in the world because there are a lot of opinions that are going out there and some even by him himself on his website Byrne Robotics but what we're here to do is to state for the record at least for us that John Byrne played a large part in the comic book growth of most of today's fans and that are people that I'd say they're in their age range from the 30s to the 60s I think those that are older than that you know, like the older age of books, the golden age and such, and not necessarily were brought up on Burns, so they don't look necessarily look at him like they would look at the older stuff. And then people that are in the, the that are they're thirty or below, kind of have that they like they like the guys that we're seeing today, and they don't necessarily want to go backwards, which is part of that curse that you see in most comic book companies where they don't want to hire older comic book artists; they're just going for the young ones. Yeah, and that's a shame, but but I I think as something that shows to Burns uh, talent and skill that I'm still buying his books today. He's doing yeah. his Star Trek for books, which I'm enjoying and his uh, red penciled stuff. He was doing on Star Trek, uh, 
was still good stuff. It, it's not as sharp as what he was doing 20, 25 years ago, but it's still, well, it's still, it's still good. I actually think that his Star Trek work, uh, now, of course, some of it was based on, you know, he's sitting there looking at photos of a lot of characters and he's using those, uh, he's doing photo reference work. And that, of course, makes his work real tight. Uh, but I think that his artwork, and his, especially the whole Romulan Crown storyline story there that he did, um, was better than his work, say, on West Coast Avengers or Namor. And, of course, part of that, I think, is, is uh, the inking on West Coast Avengers. I wasn't necessarily a fan of the inking on, on that. Maybe it was just because of the way the books were printed, but it just didn't. It looked too liney for me. It was too scratchy for me, as a, that, which I think that was Mike McClan. Yeah, in, instead of the work that he did when he inked himself, which a lot of people don't necessarily like, they kind of they kind of find his inking to be thicker, heavier. Yeah, I, I don't like his when he's inking himself, and in the the issues there's some uh, problems with some of the issues we're going to cover tonight of that it just looks a little a little heavy, muddy. And yeah, a little I know. muddy, a little heavy, a little thicker. It doesn't have those crisp lines that Terry Austin brings to it. Yeah, and I, I think what we're going to see here, and I, I, what I'm going to bring to this is that he had number one, he was doing a lot of work at the time, and number two, I think that I think they were really rushed to get this stuff out. So I think the anchor had a lot of pressure to get it done really quick, and that's that. We'll, but we'll talk about that as we get into the notes of each of the books that we're doing. Yeah, there there are some panels in here that look like it was possibly Burn was doing breakdowns and the anchor was finishing them. Right. Now, uh, I guess what we want to do next, or do you have anything else you want to say before we go into the bio? Uh, no, I think we just need to give, I mean, we're, we hope whoever's listening to this knows uh, who John Byrne is, but if not, we're going to give you a little rundown of uh, who the man yeah. is. And His whole name is uh, John Lindley Byrne. He was born July 6, 1950 in West Bromwich, West Midlands, United Kingdom. Now, I'm, I'm pulling the bio from, from his own bio off the uh, Byrne Robotics website, so... Some of it he, he stated in first person, and then we go back and forth here. Uh, he bounced back and forth between Canada and England until he was eight. He settled in Edmonton, Alberta in 1958. He moved to Calgary, Alberta in 1966. From there, he moved to Chicago when he got married in 1980. Brooklyn Heights from 1983 to 1985. Since then, he's been in Fairfield, Connecticut. He attended Alberta College of Art from 1970 through 1973. John Byrne has worked continuously in comics since 1975, following his first professional sale in late summer 1974, beginning humbly enough with the likes of Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch and Doomsday Plus One for Charlton Comics and Iron Man and the Champions for Marvel. He eventually moved on to Marvel's number one cult book, X-Men, not yet uncanny, in 1977. It was his work on X-Men which truly ignited John Starr, and from there he moved on to Captain America, The Avengers, and a five-year run on Marvel's flagship title, Fantastic Four. Seeking new heights to conquer, in 1986, John accepted the daunting assignment of revamping the oldest and most famous of all superheroes, Superman. Beginning with the hugely successful Man of Steel miniseries, John brought Superman back to the attention of the fans, and the success continues today. In 1990, John decided to venture into the unpredictable waters of creator-owned works, launching Next Men in 1991. Following that success, he brought out Danger Unlimited, followed by Babe in 1995. Since then, he's written and drawn such titles as Wonder Woman, X-Men The Hidden Years, Lab Rats, Doom Patrol, Blood of the Demon. In 2005, he returned to Superman, performing art duties for Action Comics. Now, he's also done uh, a lot of Kirby work with his uh, Jack Kirby's Fourth World. 
And of course, he did the IDW work for Star Trek uh, related books, and which, of course, lately the Fumetti Fumetti photo stories. Photo stories. <laughs> Uh, his first work was on a Dracula uh, for Marvel was on a Dracula book, and I've looked at it. it. Looked really, really heavily edited and inked over. But I guess that's to be expected. His early work, uh, you could tell that he had trouble with faces and he had trouble with uh, anatomy, especially around the midsection. And uh, you, you saw that that they relied heavily on inkers to help him out in that. You, I mean, we even see this in in Iron Fist, where he still had some difficulties with the anatomy but uh, his artwork was still very very beautiful back then oh i agree it's um and some of this uh, to peel back my curtain a little bit some of the stuff we'll be covering is new to me as big a fan as, as i am of burn i have not read everything he's done or i it's been many years since i've read it so i'm so i'm trying to rediscover burn through the process of this podcast and discover some of the stuff that I, I've never been exposed to. So I'm hoping uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I'll say this, that these books that we're covering tonight, were I did not read them when they first came out. Um, I caught up to them. It would be in the mid to late 90s when I actually found uh, a checklist or website or something that um, told me where you know what all books he had worked on up to that point. And I I mean, I was already had a good burn collection, and, and the, the guys at the comic book shops around me just like, how do you know which books he worked on? Because I kept finding them left and right here and there. And, uh, you know, so, but I, I picked these up in the mid to late 90s, and I'd never seen them before. I wasn't even aware of the storyline. Um, so I, I was, I was a, a real treat to find them and, and then see, you know, his early work before he'd started working on X Men. But uh, that being said, I think right now would be a good time to go ahead and take a break, maybe uh, do a promo for somebody else, and then we can come back and get into the books. What do you say? Uh, that sounds good. Yeah, we will uh, We will insert a promo if we have any. We, <laughs> we're new to this, so that's another thing. This is Brian and I's first podcast, so uh, there are going to be some growing pains here. But we hope, honestly, that somebody will find this enjoyable. Oh, I'm enjoying we're, we're having a fun time, so we hope somebody I'm, else will enjoy listening to this. I'm having a blast. Yeah, this is fun. Uh, okay, we'll take a break, and we'll be back, and we'll get uh, right into the books. Hey, Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm, I'm just a little confused lately. I yeah, What else is new? Well, you know, m- more than usual. I tried to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we having trouble finding them. Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avenger Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and, um, <laughs> oh, you took but, the words you know, right out of my mouth. They were on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. Yeah, no, you got to go to the feed. you got to go to the Back to the Bins feed. The Back to the Bins feed? What's yeah, that? Back to the Bins feed. you got to go to iTunes. You look, for, look up Back to the Bins, and you subscribe to the Back to the Bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed, too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on... All right, so if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm going to go on to iTunes, and I'm going to click on Back to the Bins, and I'll find Back to the Bins and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill, you go to the feed. You subscribe to the show. You subscribe to whichever show you want, and then you get it. It's that what simple. Sh- you just got to go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the bins. Where? An Avengers Spotlight. 
Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on TwoTrueFreaks.com. You want them, uh, you get them. They're you all got them? You. All the oh. shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so... Feed. The feed. If you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Uh, Scott, could you tell him... Hey, man, don't, don't drag me into this, because uh, it's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. <laughs> Bastard. All right, and we're back. And we're going to go ahead and start looking over the books we're doing today, which is Avengers 164 through 166. The first one, obviously, being Avengers 164, published by Marvel Comics. Cover date, October 1977. This was on sale in July of 1977. What's interesting to note is that in October of 77, Byrne actually worked on three different books at this time. Uh, Marvel Team-Up number 62, all this in the QE2, that was where Spider-Man and Ms. Marvel fought the Super Scroll. And that is a, a really good issue, and I hope that uh, sometime in the future we get to cover it. The other one was uh, the cover for Supervillain Team-Up. And if I get this right, and I'll have to look back a little bit more, but I believe this is the first time that Byrne and Austin worked together. They worked on, on this cover, Supervillain Team-Up number 14. Is that, and, uh, that's not one that was covered recently by the Back to the Bins guys, is it? I, I don't believe so. I I, uh, I don't remember this co- being covered. It was uh, looks like a Magneto and Doom teaming up. Maybe maybe they did. Well, they did. A, I recently did a supervillain. Maybe I'm thinking supervillain team up. But it was Doom and Red Skull. So maybe that's okay. My, that's yeah. Well, my, this my mistake. No, this one's <clears throat> Doctor Doom and Magneto, and uh, maybe maybe they did. Maybe they. Did. I'm not sure. But uh, this cover, you know, it's uh, it, it it's very interesting. I mean, it, it looks like it's got Avengers and X Men. Or actually, Avengers and Champions together, because I see Hercules and the Iceman and Angel. Yeah, so it's uh, the Defenders and the Avengers all, you know, towing to Doctor Doom, who uh, looks like he's ruling the table. But uh, that's Doom, Doom that's, always rules. <laughs> yeah, this is true. This is true. And when we get to Doom, and uh, there's a couple issues I definitely want to cover as far as Burns Doom is concerned. I, I definitely got some interesting points to make. So uh, I can't wait to see that down the road. All right. The cover price on this book, Avengers 164, was 30 cents, had a 32-page count, and was edited by Archie Goodwin. The uh, front cover was penciled by George Perez with inker John Tartaglioni. And the cover shows uh, Captain America being attacked by the living laser, while Whirlwind and Power Man are in the back fighting against the Wasp, Yellow Jacket, the Black Panther. And in front of all them are some hands gnarled up as if they're getting ready to attack. The whirlwind sits there and says, the lethal legion is back. Power man says, and the Avengers are finished. And then whoever it is, it's off panel says, not all of them. And with the way this cover is, it's supposed to be someone there to help the Avengers, but I'm trying to figure out if that's supposed to be Iron Man or the Scarlet Witch because of the way it's the way the hands are done. They're gnarled up like, like the Scarlet Witch getting ready to do her hex whammy, but it, she doesn't have any kind of yellow on her gloves. That uh, just could be the light burst off of the laser. Had you noticed that? I I didn't pay much attention to that uh, cover because I actually I assumed that to be uh, maybe one of the villains. I didn't think of it as being somebody coming to help. Yeah, I only noticed that you know later looking at it. I had not noticed that for a long time. And this is this is a beautiful George Perez cover because it's got a lot going on in there, and it's got the typical George Perez uh, rubble and stuff. And there's actually money all over the floor. 
So uh, I would like to have been part of that cleanup. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) going on into the book itself, uh, this issue was written by Jim Shooter, penciled by John Byrne, inked by Pablo Marcos. Letter was Denise Wall, later Vladimir, when she got got married, and colorist was Phil Rachelson. Now, the synopsis I'll be reading is from the Marvel Wiki. I thought that uh, the the wikis actually had some pretty decent synopses on these uh, particular issues, so I'm going to go ahead and, and use them. Scientists among the Avengers confirm that Wonder Man has become a brief, uh, come a being of living energy, while the Beast discovers that he's apparently become irresistible to women. Unknown to them, Count Nefaria has recruited three of their old enemies, the Whirlwind, the Living Lager, and the former Power Man, forming a new lethal legion. When the trio robs a bank, Captain America leads a contingent of the Avengers against them, but fails to prevent their escape. Then as the heroes gather for a meeting... The mansion is attacked by their foes, whose powers have been greatly amplified by nefarious scientists. In the midst of the ensuing battle, however, the villains' powers suddenly desert them, and they are defeated. The next second, the Avengers are staggered by a titanic shockwave and rise to face the confident, costumed figure of Count Nefaria. And that is a cool costume, I've got to say. That, I will agree. That is a, uh, it's a... It's a swinging costume. It's really kind of that off-the-shoulder look. That's that's kind of cool. It's it's royal almost, you know, in the way it's done. If it, it, it couldn't have been more kingly unless it was purple, you know? True. <laughs> now, there was some notes I found that said that Byrne provided some dialogue in the story pages 14, uh, panel 7, visual bits, and the introduction to Maximoff. And this came apparently by the letters page in Avengers 168. And there's also some other trivia. The Beast notes that he'd been missing from the team for days because he was spending considerable time with the young females. One name mentioned is Patey, and that's a reference to a Marvel artist and head of production, Patey, later the wife of the late, great Dave Cockrum. And uh, if you're not sure who Dave Cockrum is, he's probably one of the best costume designers they ever had in comic books, responsible for several of the X-Men, including Nightcrawler and Colossus, uh, and also the Legion of Superheroes. Many, many of the costumes from there he designed. Yeah, and Nightcrawler, in my opinion, is one of the uh, one of the best costumes there is. Yeah, very, very, very cool. Okay, uh, do you want to start off and give me any notes you might have, or do yeah, you want to kind of uh, look at it I'll page by page? I'll a shot at um, analyzing this piece of art here. One, the artwork is great. I think um, it's not quite uh, it's not quite burn level, or it's not quite his his polished style. It's not Superman. (laughs) Right. It's not Jaws. Uh, Was that Michael Bailey? No, it's it's from uh, Listen to the Prophets, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But you can certainly see the roots fully uh, burn at his height. You will see in this. um, This is the, I thought it was interesting. This is the, you see Wonder Man coming back from his being previously dead. Yeah. And 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 throughout this this whole three series that he's kind of uh, full of all this angst about is he alive is he a hero uh, he's just full of self doubt he doesn't think he's determined you know he doesn't think he deserves to be an Avenger and of course Panther and all the other big brains are trying to figure out what's wrong with him and they're just kind of shutting out Beast here I thought that was interesting that he kind of feels left out and just decides to he decides to. Uh, use the patented Ben Graham coat and uh, trench coat disguise to <laughs> yeah. walk around New York, which to me in comics has always been, well, until they take the hat off, that's when everybody realizes, oh, you don't look human. You know, it's it's fooling everybody up until that point. But uh, then, And then he apparently goes off for 
uh, you know, I'll, I'll say it. He apparently goes off for like a threesome or something because he meets these women, and the next thing, and when he comes back, he's uh, apparently had some kind of romantic interlude with them. You know, I remember reading in, I think it was the official handbook to the Marvel Universe about this, you know, how he seemed to have all the women around him. And it basically what it amounted to is some sort of pheromone uh, activity. That makes sense. So, so basically he's concentrated axe spray. <laughs> he's like <laughs> the, uh, is it the Mandarin? Not the Mandarin, the, the Mandrel that gives off a pheromone that he looks like an ape, but he gives yeah. off this pheromone that all the women can, can't resist him. Yeah, you got to wonder about that one for sure. <laughs> well, you got to wonder why, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when we first see Nefaria, it, it's it's kind of a nice reveal with his little his little signet ring there, and you see his monocle in the, in the uh, rearview mirror. Yeah, what kind of person wears a ring over their gloves? Oh, you got you to gotta represent. You got to have that ring out all the time. <laughs> He's probably got a ring under the gloves, too. Mm, That's maybe. probably stitched into the ring, into the glove. <laughs> yeah. But... His his he's kind of using the same mo that he did previously when he showed his because he first showed up in Avengers thirteen and then showed up again and which is kind of a direct sequel to this X Men X Men ninety four where he uh, which is the death of Thunderbird and his his mo is that he hires these lackeys to do his his bidding and then they screw up and then he gets pissed so basically this these three storylines. <laughs> These three issues are basically him saying, if you can't, you know, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. yourself. Yeah. So that's, that's what the whole, you know, his, uh, <laughs> want to get power from these three guys and he's going to, he's going to trick them. Uh, I thought his, you know, him grabbing, uh, the power man was kind of interesting. And I have to say on the wizard, I wasn't sure I had to look this up. At this point, the wizard, wizard thinks he is the father of Wanda and Quicksilver. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure. I couldn't find anything on why that happened. I'm sure there are re- listeners out there that are screaming into the. Uh, if they're listening to this, thinking, "Oh, you know, you should know this," but I don't. But I thought that was interesting. That why the wizard thinks he is um, the father of these two. That apparently goes with his, his grave thinking that. Yeah, probably for the best. And that is an ugly costume. <laughs> the wizard. It's yeah. It, it's it's all yellow. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, it's 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 a Wolverine costume. Kind of, you know, he's got the blue trunks and he's got the yellow outfit and he's got the little cap wings and yeah, it's, I, I mean, yuck, <laughs> but that's just me. And don't you love this sixties kind of panel here on page, was that page 10? It's 10. It's, it's that middle panel on the far right where it just shows her walking down a Wanda walking down a hallway and, and it's kind of tilted like in, in the, the Batman 66 show yeah, where they had the. There, there's a lot of these. There's a, there's a great splash page in this next issue that's got a great Dutch angle. Uh, and then that Burns doing that. Now looking up at that, that the wizard. This is this is something that that bugged me, and I, I mentioned it to you before we we ever did. You know, first time we got together and talking about this, is where is that trestle he grabs hold of, and how does grabbing it make him go backwards? Uh, that's that's comic book physics. I don't. Uh, <laughs> that's that's. That that needed to happen, and I think Byrne just said, "Well, I, I'm going to give him a little." And what's nice is he drew the the trestle, but he went to the trouble of look like he put. It looks like it's got garland on it. Yeah, <laughs> I can't tell what that is, what that's supposed to be. But um, I thought I thought the the fight with the uh, this first fight with Whirlwind and Power Man and Living Laser, Living Laser is being a, being a typical kind of a jerk. But that's a kind of a cool and uh, cool little fight. Uh, page fourteen, bottom panel. There's a nice little. I guess that building it says Perez is a nice little nod to George Perez. That's uh, right behind oh, yeah. Living Laser. And I did miss that. That's when you you know you introduce back into Captain Nefarious, and he's 
talking to his little scientist underlings and about you know, you know you need to you know this is my this is let me monologue here and this is my my uh, great plan I'm going to do and then you get some more uh, back and forth between the the you know typical bickering between the uh, the underlings but bottom of page 17 that is an awful casual pose for cap i mean cap I, to me yeah. is a soldier yeah, I was he thinking the same thing. He wouldn't sit that way. I think he's he, that's He'd a little be upright. You know yeah. that that yeah, I, I could see Wonder Man doing that. Maybe not Wonder Man though, because he's he's from a bygone era of gentlemen and everything. You know that's part of why he he is the way he is. I can see Iron Man doing that. Yeah, but yeah. not uh, not, not Cap. Uh, yeah, but at, at this point, we know that Cap is in a bad mood. He is upset with what's going on in the Avengers. He's not happy with it. You know, in his eyes, Iron Man's not doing the job that he's supposed to be doing, and the Avengers aren't up to snuff. So he's just kind of, this is him being a little bit of an angry, angry person. He's mad. He's mad. uh, That was kind of my problem I had with uh, this whole through storyline was that I felt that he, he felt like the team wasn't, wasn't getting much in the way of leadership, and he should have stepped up. I felt Cap should have stepped up and kind of just taken charge. Instead of kind of stepping back and going, well, we got to wait for Iron Man to come in here, and he's our leader, and we got to obey him. But um, yeah, I felt that was a little out of character for Cap. I thought the the little joke on top of uh, where Beast is, they when they throw the car in through the window, and and Beast like uh, we can invite him in for a game of air hockey. Then he puts us, oh, they probably cheat though. I thought that was kind <laughs> of a nice little character bit. With he did, oh, he has man. some the Beast has some pretty good one lines through this. Yeah, now the page before that though, when they, when they actually throw the car in, do you happen to notice that in the second panel there how funny the beast looks? Oh, at the top. Yeah, they're there yeah. in the, sec- the second panel. He just it, it almost looks like the beast has put his face over a cardboard standee of himself. I, it's like the the body's two dimensional, but the head's three dimensional almost. It, it it just looks really really odd. But that's just me. I mean, that's just my my look at the biology there. It just looks kind of funky. He does. It does look a little awkward. And I love this this uh, when the car comes in, cusmat ash, <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like uh, um, Janet takes a full brunt of that. She's just just uh, getting blasted oh, with yeah. that. Oh man! But they go right on the attack, though. Yeah, Wonder Man comes in and has to prove that he's you know he's worthy, and you know you're not going to push me around, and he has to jump out there and take on Power take Man, on, take on all of them, and and of course Hank's same thing on page twenty six. Hank's tells Cap. Uh, you gotta let me have a piece of them because they hurt Jan and Cap's like, okay. It's like, no, that doesn't that didn't seem <laughs> that seems that kind of out of character for for Cap too. It'd be like, no, we're not about that. It'd be more like, Hank, we're not about that. We're not about uh, just getting you know getting revenge. We have to you know, sure we gotta take these guys down, but this shouldn't be. Yeah, but you know, you know what this this reminds me of a lot is is that uh, the later Avengers, as you get when you had the the Perez Michelini run that. It's got a lot of the flavor of that. Jim Shooter is is definitely laying the groundwork for a lot of the team dynamics and the way that everybody's getting along or not getting along. True. So uh, I I, uh, I I was like, you know, this didn't necessarily seem exactly the way I'd expect them, but I, I, I really liked it anyway. I th- thought, thought that a lot of it was handled pretty well. And then Beast gets thrown for a couple blocks. And how he survives that, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, unless he... Well, I mean, if you look at it, it almost looks like he gets thrown towards the top of that building. So he could actually be just, you know, it could be just be a 10, 15 foot drop. Yeah, not necessarily. He's, he's going to be coming in with some velocity. I think he's yeah. going to be, uh, he's going to be, it's not going to feel too good when he, you know, when he hits, when he hits. But he's supposed to be a lot tougher than he looks for sure. That's true. Okay. And I think that I thought it was a, a nice, 
it was a nice intro to Nefaria when he comes in at the end, where all the guys, lo- you know, all the villains lose their power, and then the Avengers are are, are feeling kind of cheated of their victory, and then they yeah. just get kind of walloped, and then Nefaria just basically shows up, and and man, he starts once he starts showing up, he starts chewing the scenery. He's just yeah, he's all. Uh, and that last shot of him, while the costume looks great, the head just looks so muddy. Now, is that just the 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 issue that got scanned, or is that is that just the way they looked? I can't tell. I'm looking at a scanned copy too, so it might be just the nature of the the paper and the printing at the time. Yeah, if you saw this recolored now, it might look a lot cleaner. Yeah, I definitely would like to see this one and the other ones recolored, and and I'll I'll get on that in the, the later issues. For sure. But this, yeah, this last shot, though, is really, really cool. As you sit there and you look at the Avengers all laying on the ground and there's Count Nefarious standing there. And it's just like, holy crap, what's get, what's about to happen here? Yeah. And, it, and, and from right off the bat, he's, he's basically, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to waste you and kill you. And kind of his his whole, uh, <laughs> most of his motivation. I'll talk about that later when we get through other issues. Because his yeah. motivation changes to me and it doesn't it doesn't seem to make sense when it's, once it does change. But um Okay, uh, I so... Good. I think we can go on to uh, issue number 165. Yeah, 165. Now, looking back at that issue as a whole, though, you know, I think that is um, very solid, very tight, very good uh, Avengers story issue. I mean, I think it's a little too tight as far as the storytelling goes. It probably could have been stretched out a little bit. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of the paneling, and I'll, I'll say this through all three issues, a lot of the paneling is really, really tight. And it was almost like they didn't have enough room to, you know, to. It was almost like they didn't have enough room to tell the story because it just it he he could have done a lot more, given us a lot more bigger bigger shots. I'm not saying that we should have full page scans, especially in this particular issues. The later issues definitely had more, but it really seemed compact. It yeah, it's it it seems like he's kind of adhering to a nine panel grid for most of what he's doing. Yeah, uh, and there aren't a lot of big. Really, the biggest one really is the, is nefarious at the end. There aren't a lot of big open, kind of widescreen type shots, but yeah, uh, we get more of that I think in the next issue it, that he picks it up a little bit. Okay, well let's I guess uh, go ahead and jump to the next one. Uh, one second. All right, uh, let's see. Avengers one sixty five again published by Marvel in November of nineteen seventy seven on sale August nineteen seventy seven. Now that month he did Marvel team up number sixty three, Night of the Dragon. I believe that's with the. Uh, with the daughter's notes with Iron Fist and then Marvel team up. Uh, no, that's the same one. That's just a variant cover. And then Avengers 165 hammer of vengeance. And that's the one we're going to talk about right here. So he got a break from all the books he was doing. Cause it was almost like he was doing three or four a month uh, at that. Now this right here, you know, looking at this, as, as I think about it, it's kind of like this was his audition to do a, a team book. Even though I, he'd already been doing the champions, hadn't he? Yeah, he'd he'd already been doing um, the champions I before so. this. Well, I know he was doing in the next issue we're gonna cover. He he was at the same month he did that. He did X Men One Hundred Eight. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because yeah, that's right. He, but he'd already done the champions. But that was really. Uh, I think he was doing the breakdowns, and then Bob Layton was doing a lot of the finished art because it uh, it doesn't look quite like his artwork really. Okay. Uh, so. Again, uh, the cover price in this was $0.35. Cents. Page count was 32 and Archie Goodwin's the editor. The cover to issue 165 is, again, another George Perez uh, masterpiece, in my opinion. And this one here, we see the floating head of Count Nefaria, 
looking down upon the Avengers under a building. You've got Iron Man, Wonder Man in a torn up shirt, Beast, Scarlet Witch, Black Panther, who seems to be out, Captain America and the Wiz are all looking up at what looks to be a collapsing building. And it says, what is the monstrous, mind-staggering new power of Count Nefaria? And the wizard saying, he knocked the whole building over on us. We'll be crushed. Hammer of Vengeance. I thought this cover was very reminiscent of X-Men 94, where it's the same kind of situation. We've got a big kind of disembodied head of Nefaria yeah. kind of menacing the heroes. Yes, I agree. I agree. <laughs> Okay, so uh, cover uh, pencil is George Perez and inker was Mike Esposito. Uh, the issue was written by Jim Shooter, pencil by John Byrne, ink by Pablo Marcos, letters by Denise Wall, Vladimir. Colorist was Phil Rachelson. The synopsis from this one also, also comes from the Marvel Wiki. When they temporarily increased the powers of his costume henchmen, nefarious scientists analyzed their abilities and have now endowed Nefaria himself with similar powers, increased 100-fold. The Count is now mighty enough to challenge the assembled Avengers single-handedly. His incalculable strength, speed, and invulnerability, and blazing eye beams enabling him to overpower even Wonder Man. He concludes the battle by toppling a 40-story building on the heroes. When the aged wizard confronts him with the fact that his power is meaningless because he will still age and die like other men, Nefaria is taken aback and flies off. Moment later, moments later, Iron Man arrives and is amazed to find that the teammates have survived beneath the rubble. Before he can lead them on the counterattack, Nefaria returns seeking Thor, and the battle begins anew. Count Nefaria is again on the verge of victory when suddenly Thor arrives to join the fight. Now, I gotta say that a little bit of that plot makes me think of Marvel Superhero Secret Wars, specifically when the Molecule Man dropped the building. Uh, not uh, not the building, but a mountain on top of the Avengers and, and Fantastic Four and everything. And Iron Man had cleaved out a hole, and the Hulk was holding it up, and they, you know, Reed Richards had to cobble away to get him out. And of course, both that and this were written by Jim Shooter. True. So it, little, uh, I I don't know what you call that foretelling or foreshadowing or whatever, but uh, we saw it here, and it gets done there later. Well, I think a lot of the, especially this issue a lot of the beats in this are borrowed or burn borrows when he does ff 249 when they are fighting the gladiator oh yeah it's similar to nefaria here picks up a building and basically drops it on him it's mm -hmm. uh, gladiator is the same thing uh, the whole fight between uh, nefaria and the avengers is very reminiscent of ff's fight with gladiator well I, and that goes to another thing here i mean what has nefaria basically become here he's become the original version of Superman. Yeah, he's got all the powers except for flight, where he just leaps great distances. And uh, Gladiator was basically just another take on Superman. Yeah. So, yeah. though this one is definitely more of a physical strength and all the physical powers of super speed and laser eyes and, and all that. But uh, definitely a, a, a really interesting thing to sit there and see that you've got this one guy that's so powerful that all the Avengers are sitting there hitting him with everything they got. And they can't hurt him. True. And at this time, with this roundup, because they don't have Iron Man and Thor, they really don't have any heavy hitters. Yeah. They, you know, the, probably the strongest one there is, well, they've got Wonder Man, but he's so crippled by self-doubt that the strongest uh, Avenger is probably the Beast. Yes. They don't, they don't have anybody until Iron Man and Thor show up to, to really go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Deferium. And Scarlet Witch was never, she just wasn't being utilized to her full potential at this point. No. Yeah, she wasn't... Um, I agree that. Um, God, that that first panel on the first page is so beautiful. 
That is a great. That's a great splash page. I have notes of that. That is a great with him uh, just kind of brushing them both aside. And once again, we've got the Batman tilt. Yep, it's that Dutch angle. <laughs> uh, where's my note? I have a note that um, that's a great splash page. Page two, when the beast flies at him in a rage and saying, "You know, if I knew you were alive, I was. I didn't. I would have uh, hunted you down because you murdered." Thunderbird, well, really, if you want to get picky about it, he didn't really murder Thunderbird. The fairy was trying to get away. Thunderbird chose to jump on his plane and disable it, and he, you know, reluctantly didn't jump off because he, you know, he said he was he wanted to be a loner, and he gets killed. So it's not really Nefarious's fault that Thunderbird yeah. did. It's tragic. Yeah, but, but in this case, I'll go potato potato. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can see the beast would still consider that to be uh, a cause for you know for him to die, and he would. Yeah, you know, I mean the beast wasn't even there for that, if I remember. He wasn't. No, he because he, no, he, so. he was in the Avengers. I think right. he was with the Avengers still. So. Yeah. Now the the thing that I'm I'm noticing here, and, and we've I'll probably make uh, comments about it through the book, is that the coloring is it's it's almost like they they were not on the the. the not everybody was on the same page as far as the coloring is going because it looks like Nefarious hair has got that that blue highlight when it really looks like he should have a Reed Richards, Richards. stripe, you know, kind of white stripe going around the head. But they went ahead and did everything in blue. But it, it seems like the colors in, in, in this book and the next book, they, they did run into a lot of trouble. If you look at the red on his cape and the red on Scarlet Witch and the red on Iron Man and every other red in the book – it's all the same red. Captain America's shield and cap- the red on Captain's costume. It's all the exact same red. Now, blue, we see a modulation. We see beef and the Beast and the Black uh, Panther are definitely different colors, and that's demonstrated through the book and in, in other areas where we've got blue. But it just seems to be red and, uh, well, yellow as well, where it seems duplicated on everything. And I don't know if that's a printing, if that's a printing thing. I mean, I know... I know it's a limitation of when you're doing a four-color comic book. The, 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 you should be able to, to, to mix you know, a variation of colors. And red definitely being the most vibrant color, you should be able to try to find you know, some differentiation there. I, I, I remember seeing the same thing when I was reading the Iron Man books in the 80s. And they had Rhodey and his girlfriend in a hot tub. And they're, they're both exactly the same skin color. And I'm just like, should they really be? Uh, I mean, I, she I, may be. Yeah. A, I can she, see that. That's a that that may be a limitation of the of the, the time in which it was printed, and it's it is yeah. the, it is an economy to uh, be able to use one. You know, it probably makes it quicker because you only have one. If you've got right. multiple colors of of red, you're gonna have to have more plates. If you've got True. all the same red, you have one plate for all the red. Right. Right. But it's just one of those things that really struck me because there is a, such a preponderance of red in this issue. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see this recolored to see if they if that had been corrected. Now that it's probably done digitally. Yeah, because now even on page three, when you're looking at uh, when the yellow jacket is zapping Nefaria in the face, you you look at the hair and you can see that they intentionally did all of that blue. Yeah, and I don't know if that's that's that was done. Maybe Byrne decided to do that because later, when I think when he shows that he has aged, that they've just decided not. To, it's like they wanted to draw it that way and paint it blue now and then later they would not paint it blue so that it looked right. like he had maybe aged over the course of this battle yeah and that's just or i don't know maybe burn meant for it to be white and but that that, 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 that could very well be it and that, that's one of those editorial things i think that drive that drove burn nuts where he would draw something and then they would do something to make it different true well if you look yeah. at the bottom of page three 
he looks like he's got little devil horns. He's got what? Like he's got little devil horns. Oh yeah, horns. yeah, yeah. I see that. Yeah, because like, you know he's he's being hit and his hair's just going up. All I guess over his the place. hair's being. Yeah. Uh, you know, he doesn't have super hair. Keep it in place. <laughs> no, because everybody else is wearing a helmet or something. A helmet or a mask. <laughs> All right. Well, we haven't gotten there yet. There's there's some interesting notes here. I, I think what happens to Wonder Man's costume is hilarious. Because he just gets ripped up off of him, whether he's get torn up going through the wall or whatever. And so that his costume from his waist up is pretty much completely gone, except for his helmet and part of his mask. So it gives him a look for the rest of the book like he's got huge mutton chops. Mutton chops. <laughs> well, you get to see that, which some I think Byrne does wonderfully, especially when he did Wolverine, that wonderful hairy chest. Yeah. And Byrne draws uh, people like that, that, that really has a very tactile feel to it. And on page six at the bottom, when Wonder Man is coming through the the wall, that in this these all three issues, that's the only little bit of burn tech which I'll bring up yep. that you see. Well, I don't know what that is. It's either part of the door or something he ran into, but that's um, that's typical uh, kind of looks like a high chrome kind of polished uh, smooth well, the, metal. That was just tech. part of a wall. Now, I mean, it looks like the, that he's coming through into a kitchen area. Yeah, and, yeah, it does look like he's in the get because Jarvis has got a, a thing of coffee. And then it looks like there's a either a bread basket or a bread maker over there on the on counter the left, to the yeah. left. But yeah, but it, it, if I remember, you know, Jarvis says basically that he went through some of the machinery that was keeping the keeping the vision uh, in stasis. Yeah, he says check the powers that may have damaged the houses the houses systems on the way in. So that, yeah, that basically that's just a um, a plot device to get Jarvis to go and check on the vision, and we get caught up that you know apparently the vision has been put in a coma. From his battle with the Grim Grim Reaper and Ultron. Yes. From the previous I, issues, yeah. Ooh, good stuff, good stuff. Let me get now, to the, I think as we get to our first, um, yeah, where he first picks the building up, it's bottom of page 10. That's yeah. That's very much like Gladiator when he picks oh, it up yeah. and tosses it on him. And that leads to your, uh, to like you said, the Secret Wars storyline of when they drop, the Molecule Man drops the, the mountain range on the Hulk and the rest of them. Yeah. And and somehow they, they protect themselves. Now, when we get up to page 14 here, though, here comes Henry Peter Gyrich. And this is like, uh, I, I don't know if this is the very first appearance of him in Marvel Comics. I know it, that it may be one of the first appearances of him in the Avengers. And he has got the ugliest pants that a man could ever wear. <laughs> yeah, those are, yeah, those are uh, checkered pants. Those are, I guess that was the fashion of the time. It looks like he just got off the golf course with Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> and then the girl up in the panel, uh, the, the second panel there on page 14, has got the Farrah Fawcett haircut. For a moment there, I thought it was Carmine Infantino doing the artwork. Yeah, that does. That, and that's interesting because I'm reading uh, Star Wars right now, and I'm reading a lot of the early, I'm in the 20s, and uh, so I'm reading all that Infantino Star Wars art, and it does have a, that... Uh, and even the girl down in the bottom left-hand corner that's sitting there hitting the alarm button, she's got a very Infantino look about her as well. I, this whole page kind of screams Infantino, except for the uh, SWAT guys up at the top. They definitely look like, you know, burn, uh, you know, foot soldiers. That, yeah, you know, that, he, pa- that kind of padded, yeah, uh, padded dark outfit shading and, for the, if they've using the, to re- represent those padded uh, vests. That's very burn. Yep. And the gloves and the glasses and... Yeah, yeah. The the guy's definitely got a craggly face. It's like Byrne really definitely had had someone in mind when he was doing that first guy. Look, I don't know if it was photo referenced or, or what, but it's definitely you know it's like there's someone that he was trying to to mimic there when he was when he's doing that. And, and same thing in the second panel, you see the guy in the background with the real tiny 
sunglasses and the big quaff of hair. And then that other guy that looks like, you know, Tony Stark's older brother. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like, he looks like uh, Lee Van Cleef, a young Lee Van Cleef. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the top panel on page 14, right behind in the very bottom corner of that panel, there's a guy with a beard, glasses, and blonde hair. And I thought, is Byrne drawing himself in this panel? Well, look over to the left between the two guys. That's Jim Shooter. That is Jim Shooter. You're correct. Okay, yeah, I didn't, I didn't catch that one. So that is, yeah, that is, the, that is both of them. And probably the guy that Burns right would be Archie Goodwin then, but I, I could be wrong about maybe that. Maybe that's Archie because Archie, I think, had glasses and a beard. So maybe that's Archie uh, and Jim Shooter instead of Burn and Jim Shooter. Hmm. Interesting. But he had a tendency to draw himself into the books. Him oh, and yeah. uh, like, like in X Men, he drew him and Chris Claremont in there uh, in, in in one place or another. And I believe they did it in some other books as well. Well, the, the of course the famous Fantastic Four, the trial of Reed Richards, where he's in there as himself as oh, a comic yes. artist, and you know the Watcher comes in to visit him. You know, so. yeah. And then of course there's She Hulk, and yeah. even on even on Starbrand, he drew himself into there or, or wrote himself into there. I think it was more. Um, uh, I haven't read Starbrand in so long. I've gotten it. Burns uh, took that over, and those are some uh, interesting. I was a New Universe uh, guy. I bought everything. In fact, I recently found in some quarter bins, Kickers Incorporated. I think I found issue two, uh, three, and four. I thought, hey, I couldn't, I, I couldn't do up. it. <laughs> I couldn't pull the trigger on that. Okay, look up page fifteen. Love the bell bottoms in the top top oh. right panel. Oh, the girl, yeah. yeah, the girl that he he picks up and takes with her, takes with her, with, with him. Yeah, Byrne was always very pretty fashionable. I think he was pretty good about what uh, he saw a lot of that. I think in Fantastic Four when he started later doing um, Susan Storm, and he was. I think he was. Hairstyles and Hairstyles and clothing. He was pretty uh, on the nose about what was currently uh, hot. Yes, yes. And I, we'll definitely have a good uh, option for uh, discussion. Or might even have to do uh, a section, a, a section just on burn fashion. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll get there as, uh, as, as we can. So he gets the woman up to the rooftop, and then the wizard shows up to fight Count Nefaria. Yeah, and how, then, did, how did the wizard know where he was? I don't. Um, well, he's a fast guy. He probably ran to the top of every building until he found one they were on. That's possible. <laughs> that's possible. But the the funny thing here though is in the on page sixteen, the bottom right hand uh, bottom right hand uh, panel is where, of course, the wizard is telling Nefaria that he's mortal and he's probably only got a couple good gears left in him. And I, I understand that you know this whole thing is supposed to shake Nefaria to the core of his being. It's supposed to scare him. You know, because it basically talks about his mortality. But the coloring on Nefaria looks so ashen, so yellow. It's it's beyond human coloring, you know? Yeah, I don't know if that's a mistake, because it does look like he's suddenly just gone pale. Yeah, like I, I think they I think they were shooting for pale, but I think it just went too far. It doesn't. He looks more jaundiced than anything else. But. Yes. This yeah. was a story beat that I thought didn't, didn't quite uh, ring true with me. I wasn't sure why suddenly he was worried about his mortality and I, I i think it was just the compactness of the story doing it over three issues i think it was something that needed to happen so that yeah. he would go off and seek out thor seek out thor which at this point we don't know he's doing that he's just he's right. just going off in a panic and he's all worried about dying why he wouldn't think that if he's on the same the same machine that uh, i think he used the same machine that created wonder man why he wouldn't think that he wouldn't be either immortal or Okay, one other thing I wanted to take a look back at is actually, it's actually on page 14, and it's the middle panel where Jairich is apparently walking away, and his head looks yellow for some reason, but yeah. the, the rubble on the ground, that's not burn rubble, 
And and that's something that that we're seeing in in different spots here throughout the book. It looks like you know Pablo Marcos is is doing the Vinnie Coletta clearing out and then putting in his own stuff, so he doesn't have to work you know do as much on the inking. That could be. It's such a small panel. It could be. He thought, well, I can get this. And it, again, going back to how rushed this was, uh, how yeah, it, I mean, it does look rushed in, in places. Um, even even. Uh, the Iron Man on page uh, 17, something just doesn't look right for me. I mean, there's nothing coming out of his boots. There's no propulsion. True. Uh, I, was, I was wondering about that. And he's got his hands to the side, which couldn't only be wind resistance. Of course, now with the way that we look at Iron Man from the movies, you know, his hands are just as much a part of his propulsion as his feet. Yeah. And so, so you, we always look at it like that. So when we see Iron Man in the comic books back in the day, you know, it's like, well... Still looks better this way, but that's just my opinion. I could be wrong. <laughs> well, the rubble at the bottom of seventeen is a little—it's not quite as defined as burn. Now, the rubble up the panel right above it, where you first see the the professor, the professor—that's pretty good. Yeah, and that looks like burn rubble. And now, now we're talking about the professor. I thought because of the twist—not to get too far ahead of ourselves—but the twist that's at the end of this last issue, it seems that when he's getting up and he says, "Nefaria, you fool!" Like, well. I'll come back to that when we're finished editing because I got some issues about the way this whole kind of twist ends at the uh, comes about at the end. Yeah, I I, I thought I, I kind of got the feeling that 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 Nefari, you fool was just the biting the hand that feeds you. You know, that could have been it if what he tells Nefaria is true. Yeah, you know, we find out that it's it's not. Not. And, yeah. So the page eighteen is where they Iron Man pulls them out from the hole that they. Blasted. Had uh, op- blasted open and saved everybody from Secret War style, which is after this, but still interesting. And then, of course, there's Wonder Man sporting that '70s disco look. Yeah, that he's, <laughs> he does look. Um, <laughs> with that, with him being hairless like that, it always reminds me of Sebastian Shaw. Yeah, uh, especially with the mutton chops. Yes, yes, <laughs> but that's just—it's just the mask coming down, isn't it? I mean, I, I guess it's, it's going it's under be his just chin. The mask. Yeah, it's got to be just the and uh, the, those weird red things covering his eyes. The mask, yeah, and that's—it's good that costume got destroyed because that was never a very good costume anyway. The one he gets later is much better. His old yes. his red. Uh, oh, the the safari, safari suit. Yeah, yeah, I love that costume <laughs> with a little rocket, little rockets on the side. Yeah, now this bottom right panel of Iron Man, that's almost got a little bit of Rob Liefeld in it. You know, Rob Liefeld's Captain America, the one that everybody's always ripping on? Yeah. Because he's supposed to be looking at Wanda, and it's almost like it's distended out and even facing towards the reader a little bit. It, it, yeah, it looks, yeah, it looks I can see that. Off. Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, again, I, yeah, I'm, I'm putting too fine a point on some of these things. And again, this is, you know, something that was done uh, nearly 40 years ago. And I, I mean, it's really beautiful artwork. I don't want to take anything away from burning this. This is some some gorgeous stuff, and I love it to death. But there are things that you, you find it just like when you sit there and you put it under this kind of scrutiny, you're going to see things, and 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 it's you're, you're just going to have to point them out. At least in my case, I'm going to have to point them out. Right, and with any review, it seems like we're really picking on this, but. It it was a real fun read. Yeah, it was fun definitely. read. It, the, the, like you said, the the artwork is gorgeous. You know, there's some some parts that it's a little awkward, but for the most part, the artwork is, artwork is great, and it is just a fun. It's it's I mean, it's typical superhero stuff. It's 
you know, the good guys are beating up on the on the bad guy, and the bad yeah. guy for the most part is winning. So, but right here is a good example of of what we were talking about earlier with the writing. You know, Jim Shooter writing it and giving this tension within the team. This whole four panel thing on page twenty two is all, the Avengers just basically infighting. You got Wonder Man and Iron Man and Yellow Jacket. You know, and then Captain America is sitting there asking, "Are we actually a team?" The expression on Cap's face yeah. is is really disgust. Well, he says that the team has been falling apart without a leader because Iron Man's been. I don't know. I don't know what they reference as to what was what was going on in his book at the time. Yeah. So why well, don't that was uh, let's see? But seventy seven that would have been uh, wouldn't have been Demon in a Bottle, and it wouldn't have. A lot of stuff going on at that time, but it was yeah. it wasn't yet when uh, he had killed that ambassador. Uh, or whoever it was that, that the repulsor went through. Yeah. When the other guys were taking control of it. But uh, yeah, I mean, he still he was going through a lot uh, at at that time. I mean, there definitely some some alcohol stuff was going on before they even did the demon and bottle storyline. True. But uh, yeah, and, and 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 not only he was having a lot of trouble, Thor was having a lot of trouble. So, you know, Thor was being bounced all over the place, if I remember. And he would only show up at, at uh, the craziest moments. Yeah, and they bring that up, that they get sick of him just showing up when they need him when he does show up at the end. Yeah. I did think it was a little odd that Iron Man comes in and he's, well, okay, I'm late to the party, but now it's my turn. You guys stand back. Well, you know, you should attack as a team. If you're going to try to keep, you know how powerful this guy is. Yeah. Don't just attack him one at a time. And that's the big mistake. Yeah. I mean, when when you see later on, and it's got nothing to do with this, but when you see uh, Avengers versus the Justice League, and Superman and Thor get into the fight, and Superman takes out Thor, the rest of the Avengers pile on Superman and just take him out. Yeah, that's the, I mean, you, you gotta, I mean, now, surely it should be a coordinated attack, but right. it doesn't have to be uh, Right, but, and that's the problem, is that, the, the, is that what they do here is not coordinated. But I think, you know, it, it's basically just trying to show how far apart this team is as far right. as being how a team. They need to work are, together. And that makes them, and that, and, then, and as storytelling goes, that's just going to, when they come back together and, and pull it together, that's just going to make it more powerful. So, yes. And towards these last. Well, I was sitting there looking at, at page 23 here, and the top, when the fairy breaks in on him at the mansion, and that right there is just kind of like a, a you know, it, it replays that first appearance at the end of the previous issue where he comes up out of the ground yeah and there, there he is standing there again you know ready to take them on and in like you said iron man sits there and goes in there and starts hitting him for everything he's got and this guy is just doing everything and he starts using those laser beams and it's like dang this guy's tough but what is what is beast thinking on page 26 you know the guy just shot laser beams out of his eyes that apparently could cut through anything and the beast is going to sit there and put his arms and legs in front of the guy's eyes well, that's true. He would. I would think. That, well, what's nefarious doing? He would just blast through his. Uh, yeah, I think he would just blast through his legs. But, but again, it's the the one thing that they're all counting on is nefarious inexperience as a brawler. Right. And, and, he, doesn't, and he says of himself, he's an experienced used to fighting as the rest of them. He's like, you know, one of us suddenly had superpowers. We wouldn't know what we were doing with him. Yeah. Now this this panel of Wanda here, the middle panel there on the right side. On uh, page twenty six, she almost looks like a Ditko character, yeah, like that, in, in the Doctor Strange stories. That yeah, that that hex power or flash, whatever that is, around her arms is very disco like. Dis- <laughs> yes. Disco like, not disco like, Ditko like. <laughs> I think it's a little of both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, and wow. that goes to uh, the last page, two pages where Sh- Thor shows up. I don't know what happened this last page, but. It doesn't look like Byrne did this at all. It looks very, the ink is very heavy. 
It does. It does look like Burn to me. I mean, if you look at the uh, Marvel team up where Spider-Man and Thor fought against the, I guess it was Living Monolith, that it had a lot of this. Uh, it, it, it did, uh, in, in, in my opinion, at least uh, mirror some of that. Well, the, the pose is made, but it just looks very muddy. It looks very dark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the lines are very thick. It's... Um, that's definitely the inking, though. Yeah, that's the inker. So I put that, you know, I put that on whoever's inked it. Just got a little carried away because yeah. the page previous to thirty is fine. That looks, it looked, you know, that's a Wonder Man is just going toe to toe with him. And I thought the uh, <laughs> nefarious says how fitting that a super hard body of a fallen Avenger. I snick a little bit at that. How fitting that a super hard body of a fallen Avenger should serve as a weapon <laughs> with which to smash <laughs> another Avenger. <laughs> Only in a comic book can you get dialogue like that. Nobody could, right. could say that on the big screen and get away with it. Maybe James Spader. I don't know. He, he got away with some pretty good lines. That's true. In Age of Ultron. So, yeah. But, uh, you know, again, we're getting to the end here and uh, of, of this one. Next issue, Day of the God Slayer. There's some, there's some great Kirby crackle there behind Thor. I will give that. Oh, yeah. That is, that is beautiful. And, I, 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 you know, it's like I hear guys talking about Kirby crackle. What exactly is Kirby Crackle? Kirby Crackle, named after comic book artist Jack Kirby, is an artistic convention in superhero and science fiction comic books and similar illustrations in which a field of black pseudo-fractal images is used to represent negative space around unspecified kinds of energy. Kirby Crackles are typically used in illustrations of explosions, smoke, the blast from ray guns, cosmic energy, and outer space phenomena. And yeah, well, that's that's really good information. Thank you. <laughs> now, if you look, I, I don't know about yours. Mine's actually got the letters page here, and they've got a beautiful ad down at the bottom for the X Men. But is that Burn or is that Cockrum? The way that the Wolverine is done, it makes me think it's Cockrum. I don't know. I don't have a. Uh, but I don't but, have a. Wait a minute, letters. No, I don't. I, have. I'm I'm more inclined to think that's Burn. Actually, I mean, it's just Wolverine's got the cockroom the way his mask goes up, but beyond that, the way Gene is done and and everybody it looks like uh, looks like it's Burn. Yeah, they yeah, mine's actually got that uh, the I letters the, page and everything. I got man. the Spalding ad in the back, and I've got the Spider Man and Legal Eagle, the hostess hostess ad, but I don't have. Uh... But this letters page told me something that uh, I didn't know up to that point, and that is. The pronunciation of George Perez, accent on the first E. They actually had that in a little yellow thing by the uh, editor. Instead of Perez, it's Perez. Now, it, 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 see, for me, I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm like Perez because my, my wife's uh, name before we got married was, was Perez. And so, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, that's what I always thought it was. But no, for him, it is Perez. And I'd, I'd heard them say that on Comic Book Man, and I figured, okay, you know, they're East Coast guys. Uh, maybe that's the thing. I, 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 I spent, you know, a couple of years up on the East Coast and they do things a little differently when they talk, when they park the car. And that's, that's a little bit more Boston though, you know? Yeah. That's a little more Chris and, Tyler. Yeah. Uh, but that, you know, when you talk to Paul Spataro, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a different thing and I don't want to, uh, to, to mock anyone. I'm not mocking anyone no, at all. No, we're not. I mean, we're both here in Texas, in Texas, Everybody's got an accent, and when they let it go, man, it's just hard to understand us, you yeah, know? I'm, I'm sure they're going to, yeah, they'll get, no. although I've been told I don't really have a Texas accent, but... I, I worked long and hard to get rid of all the accents I have. Now, I'm originally from Minnesota, and then oh. I lived out, outside of Boston, and then I moved to Texas. So, when I get really drunk or really tired, I got the weirdest voice you'd ever heard. <laughs> 
<laughs> no. <laughs> Though I don't say anything like a boot like Canadians do or eh. But okay, so that right there is um Avengers 165. And I'm looking at my notes to see if I missed anything there. I think we really got you know covered pretty much everything there. Uh, there was one thing that, that I actually had as part of a gripe between these first two issues. I, I, I think that the Beast and the Black Panther probably should have wound up in the hospital with broken bones. I mean, we're talking about a guy that can lift over 100 tons. Yeah, that's. I think that's going to have to fall into uh, superheroes never really get hurt. Unless you're, unless you're Daredevil. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, or, yeah, if you're, you know, if you're going to get... They never get they get beat up. They never get seriously hurt. I still remember when I was a kid reading the Daredevil with, that Frank Miller did, where uh, it was a Roger McKenzie story, and the Hulk hit him once, and that was it. And he wound up in the hospital for a whole issue after that. Well, characters are always getting backhanded and flying, yeah, dozens of feet, and they're not they're recovering. I mean, I guess you can argue that most of them are have some type of heightened metabolism, but that just I think that's just. Of all the many things you have to you have to uh, kind of accept in comics, that's that's one of them. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, if it's too if it's too if you if it tries to get too realistic and too serious, then it's, then it's like, well, this guy's dead. This is no fun, you know. Yeah. The, all right. Uh, any last thoughts on Avengers one sixty five? Yeah, my just the one, and it kind of carries into this issue. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand why Nefarious suddenly thought he needed to. To seek out Thor, you know, he's suddenly so worried about his uh, mortality, and then he thinks, "Well, I need Thor because I need." And then it, that carries over to he needs his hammer because he thinks that's what's going to keep him from living. I wasn't quite sure of that of that that story beat that he suddenly was so afraid that he was going to get old and die, or he was already middle aged, and he was seeking, uh, you know, some place to some way to prolong his life. I thought that to me that story beat just kind of seemed like it came out of nowhere. Well. I'm sitting there, and I was kind of like trying to figure that out myself. And the way I looked at it, and this is when I first read it, and I was explaining it to my wife, as I, as I think that a lot of what he did, and this happened to Wonder Man as well, was like being reborn into this figure. And he's constantly evolving as he's doing that. That's got to be doing a whole lot of crazy stuff to your body chemistry, your brain chemistry, your emotions, your endorphins. You, you have no idea what's going on in there. And so, I mean, it's going to be like a kid lashing out, I you know? Yeah. So I, every emotion you feel is, I mean, think about this. Everything he's got is magnified a hundred times. So you got to figure everything else within him, emotions, you know, just the, the, the other feelings, other things that his body does for him is going to be magnified a hundred times. When he actually does feel pain, it's going to hurt a lot if, if, if he ever does feel it. Yeah. He's going to feel it pretty bad. It's just that, you know, in the state that he is, every single thought and emotion is going to be magnified. So I, I, I see how he can sit there and, and get so single-minded on the idea of his mortality and Thor. Thor's the answer. Thor's immortal, you know. He's the closest one I can find. Yeah, he gets focused on that. I think you may be reading a little – you may be giving Jim Shooter a little more credit than he, than he deserves as a writer. Uh, I don't want to – Oh no! You know the thing is, is is I'll give Jim Shooter a lot of credit as a writer. I mean, the guy was writing Legion of Superheroes when he was a teenager, and he definitely understood the basics of storytelling a lot better than uh, than people gave him credit for. When you read his stories as a kid, you get one thing out of it, and when you read them as an adult, you get something else completely. And if you look at Starbrand, I don't know if you read them when they first came out. 
Yeah, I read Starbrand from the uh, beginning. When when I read Starbrand, I was like 18, 19 years old. And then, you know, I, I read them and I, I, I thought one thing and I was just like, I, I had certain thoughts about the characters and the people and how to identify with what. And then I read them later and I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, because I, I saw them through a different set of eyes. And I'm just like, you know, this is really good writing because he definitely understands how someone not his own age or someone that, that is from a different walk of life thinks and feels. Sure. and. Seeing that, you know, sitting him looking at him doing a, a, a team up book and then later doing Secret Wars, you know, he's juggling a lot of a lot of eggs in the air with all that, especially a lot of the male female characters. When Claremont did it with X Men, you know, he had a lot of collaboration. This I'm pretty sure was you know, I, you don't know that this is the kind of collaboration that that Byrne went through with, with Claremont. But Yeah, I would I would guess probably not, but I don't we but, don't know. Be that as it may, the one thing that it does go on to sit there and show is that when Byrne works with people that are of strong-willed, strong ego, strong minds, got a lot of strong ideas about how things should be, that the work that they usually put out is exemplary. When he worked with Claremont, they put out some of their best work together. You know, They were the Beatles. They were, they were, they, they were, were, yeah, they're, they're, that's like the Lennon McCartney, yeah. Yeah, that they were, they were the Lennon and McCartney. But, you know, the thing is, is when, when he left X Men and he goes on, you know, goes on to other, you know, his other things, he still got a lot of, a lot of his stuff there. He's, he's like the, the Jim Cameron of, of comic book artists. Claremont has to get an artist that's going to be able to, to understand the elements of tor- storytelling as well as Byrne does. And he gets it sometimes, and then he gets others that don't. So you see, you know, some artists come in like John Romita Jr., Paul Smith, that really understand those aspects. But you get someone else that doesn't necessarily handle that as well, or has their own agenda, like Mark Silvestri or or Brett Blevins, and you're not going to see things coming out in the X stories as well as you saw in the previous ones. And you're definitely not going to see what you saw in the Burn Claremont X Men. Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox here. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, are we good to go to 166? I think we're good, yes. Yes, okay. To... Yeah, okay. Avengers 166, publisher Marvel, cover date December 1977, on sale September 20th, 1977. Now, let's see. This month, he worked also on Marvel Team-Up number 64, If Death Be My Destiny. I'm not sure who that has him with. He also worked on Power Man number 48. And okay, it, uh, that's right. The uh, Marvel team up was actually uh, Spider Man and the Daughters of the Dragon in a continuation of the uh, the Steel Serpent right. storyline. And then uh, Power Man number forty eight, I think, was even a continuation of that storyline where Power Man and Iron Fist finally team up. And after issue fifty, that uh, the book goes to become Power Man and Iron Fist. So he worked on Marvel team up number sixty four, Power Man number forty eight, the Avengers number one sixty six. And he also started on X-Men number 108. This was a busy, busy, busy month for Byrne. But in a lot of that stuff, he did not disappoint. No, I was I was looking at, and I noticed that he also did X-Men 108 the same time he did this book. Yeah. If you look at the difference between the two inkers, you can, there's a world of difference between the, the art. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, 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 it, it's worlds apart. I mean, Terry Austin definitely signaled himself out as the anchor extraordinaire of the day. And uh, even years later, you, you, you team him up with other people, and he is just amazing. Yeah. But what he did with, with Burns' work was just beautiful. 
though you could still see uh, in, in the early work that they would redo some of the faces, Wolverine in particular. They did not like the face that Byrne drew for Wolverine, as I understand it. And Byrne wound up using that face in his, in his uh, Iron Fist as Sabretooth's face. And then that's where they got the idea that Sabretooth was related to Wolverine in some way. Oh, really? That's uh, where that stems from? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, Byrne had actually intended for Sabretooth to be Wolverine's father, not his uh, brother. And the, the Byrne actually had a whole origin for Wolverine worked out and ready to do. But they never went along with it because his Wolverine was significantly different from, you know, the story that you got in Origin. His, his basically was, yeah, well, here's a guy that was born in the 20s. And he had done all this stuff and everything. And yeah, he had a healing factor, but the healing factor didn't translate to the bones. And he had gotten into such a, a mess or accident that his bones basically got crushed to powder. So here's a body that works, but the, there, there's the, his skeleton is just, you know, ugh. And so he's all done up in the, one of those machines, kind of like Bullseye at the end of Daredevil, um, where he's, he's up in one of those machines and they're just doing whatever with him. And the government, you know, the Canadian government comes to him and says, you know, we can help you, you know, get back to normal. We're just going to put metal in there. And they give him claws as well. So, you know, according to Byrne, the entire skeleton is adamantium, not laced, not, not bones laced with adamantium, but just pure adamantium. And the skeletons are just a bionic addition. Well, that's all. And that, yeah, that was always, I think nobody ever intended him to have bone claws until they stripped him of his adamantium and then... Had to come up with some reason. Well, he's got to have a weapon, so let's. Yeah, it's retcon well, that he had bone claws. If we go back and and do Days of Future Past, which I'm sure that we will will hit one day, we we can discuss this a little further because he t- takes a good shot at that in there. Yeah, yeah. All right, getting back to Avengers 166, uh, again edited by Archie Goodwin. The cover was penciled by George Perez, and this time inked by Ernie Chan. And uh, it's a very dynamic cover. It's got uh, Nefarious standing there while Thor's throwing his hammer at him, and it's bouncing off and going off into the distance. And then you see behind Nefaria, phasing through the wall, is the Vision, arms out, ready to pounce on him. And uh, this is one of those times where George Perez, uh, I don't think he autographed the art himself. I think that Ernie Chan uh, did it for him because it's got the initials GP put above his EC. Yeah. And George has a very you know, specific uh, autograph on, on his art. Either that or maybe George might have put it under where the UPC code was because they were still putting them on pretty much all the books back then. Yeah. Uh, but the, the detail of the, of the tech stuff behind them I thought was really, really interesting. There's a lot of, lot of Perez tech on that cover. Yeah, it's a very detailed uh, background. But the look on Thor's face, is, it's almost a look of fear. It's, it's kind of a, a look of... Oh, you know, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing. You know, I can't believe that he's that he's you know he's resistant to my hammer. Yeah, yeah. But do you notice the how the look of the visions almost got like a a John Basima look to it? Yeah, I see a little bit of that in the face. I I see a little bit of that in, in the Thor face too, a little bit. Uh, yeah, but and and, and yeah, because I, I think Ernie Chan's inks on on George Perez kind of takes away some of the the typical facial things that George Perez Perez excuse me Perez does. Uh, and he adds uh, other things to it. it. It it doesn't necessarily make it look like standard Perez art, because for a long time I looked at this and I thought it was somebody else. And then you know I look when I finally look it up, I see it is uh, Perez. George Perez. Yeah. All right. Well, moving along. Uh, the writer is Jim Shooter. 
penciler John Byrne, inker Pablo Marcos, letterer Denise Wall, Vladimir, and colorist is Phil Rachelson. <clears throat> the uh, synopsis from the Marvel Wiki, once again, Thor and Count Nefaria face each other in single combat. The Count covets Thor's hammer, thinking it the source of his immortality, but when he moment momentarily downs his foe, the vision intervenes in the struggle. After Professor Kenneth Sturdy and his colleagues had given Nefaria his superhuman powers, Nefaria had smashed their lab and believed he had killed them. Now, however, the badly injured Sturdy appears and reveals that a side effect of his process has greatly accelerated Nefaria's aging. At this, Nefaria goes berserk and resolves to destroy the city before he dies. The Avengers pummel the Count, but he refuses to fall until the Vision, his density increased to the ultimate, drops him from a, drops, yeah, drops him from a mile overhead, rendering him unconscious. Ironically, the heroes then learn that Sturdy had lied about Nefaria's rapid aging. It's a tight little synopsis. I yeah. thought this was a a, a pretty interesting issue. I like I like, like uh, Thor's uh, Thor speak in this. Yeah. Yes. Fun. Thor speak. Though you know the first page is is it me or does Nefaria look really really almost like like he was done by crayon? He doesn't look. And this that's that was one of my notes that these this first two pages two and three don't look. They look again that the inking looks a little heavy handed and sloppy. It and sloppy. It does. It looks a little loose. It's not quite as tight and sharp as Burn um, Burn's doing. And this and there's a lot of that in this um, throughout this whole issue. Um, and again, I, just, I find uh, Nefarious's uh, uh, his 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 character beat of now he needs to find you know he's he's worried about his still worried about his immortality and he's so obsessed with getting with uh getting Thor's hammer that I I still that just to me that just seems to kind of come out of nowhere. Um, yeah. But other than that, it's, uh, and then on pay uh they, you know they fight and then Nefarious goes back to his his well I dropped a building on him once that worked I'll do it again so he picks up another building. Throws in yeah. Thor's little uh, wormhole, uh, and now the, it's still the even the rest of this page, even page six and seven, where Thor's pulling down the you know this uh, lightning storm, it still doesn't look quite burnish. It, it doesn't look burnish. It does not. It doesn't until uh, about page ten where it starts to pick up and it starts looking a little more. So I'm wondering if he did do some rough breakdowns at the. Well, yeah. If you look on on the middle of page seven, that middle panel. And there's what rain and wind and lightning and all that stuff going yeah. on. And Thor standing there holding the hammer up. That's, that's definitely burn. You know, at least parts of it is definitely burn, but all this other stuff really looks like someone else was, was putting it in. I, I don't know if it was an empty panel or if he just didn't like the way burn was drawing it and did and wanted to do it his own way, but it definitely doesn't look like what burn would do to show that kind of weather at no, least and, uh, well, and again this is you know in the 70s and it's it's early enough in his career maybe maybe he needed help on that i don't know could be and even the panel above it where nefarious is there's kablam he's getting explosions happening behind him that doesn't look that explosion no. doesn't look burnt at all that looks no so and we don't know it could have been uh he was working on you know other books so we don't know uh what what storyline on this you know it could have been that he had trouble with those pages or he didn't have time to finish the rest of them. But, but I did like, up. yeah, I really did like that bottom right panel though, where, where Thor is sitting there bringing the hammer down. The only thing I don't like is the whap. Yeah. When he's, I mean, when he's stopping it. When I, when I saw it, when I was reading that recently, I saw that I almost thought fap. 
they're just like you think it would have been a a, a larger sound or a a, you know a different effect than just wow i mean because that's thor's hammer coming down with the full strength of his his arm and nefarious stops it It, you know like like there should be a different sound associated with that but but again you know this is uh in in hindsight so uh still it's it's pretty cool effect the idea that he could just sit there and stop thor's hammer with his hand one hand yeah, and that carries into well, we don't see it till later that Thor is, you know, a little not you know he's well. That's what Miss Ferris is saying. You couldn't believe that I could that anyone could stop your hammer, and so he kind of starts pushing Thor back. Yeah, you know that because that's when we get the the Vision coming in. That suddenly, and the Vision just kind of wakes up, and suddenly he's ready just to kick ass. So he's it, out there. Is it me or does it look like Klaus Janssen inked page ten or parts of page ten? Or maybe maybe not necessarily Klaus Janssen or early, Ernie Cohen uh, colon. The, there, there's some some dark shading that's on this that that I, I haven't seen before in Pablo Marcos's inks, but you know especially where the vision is concerned, there's there's uh, an odd darkness that is, seems you know like something that Klaus Jansen or, or Ernie Cohen. It's a little, yeah, it's a little, it's a little heavier. Yeah, Gene Colan. I'm, I'm saying Ernie, but I mean Gene Colan. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little uh, thicker here, but uh, it's it's better than it was on the previous two panels. So it seems mm-hmm. like it's getting a little, uh, and that's a great shot in the panel top of panel eleven where he's punching out Thor. I love those speed lines around that. Wait, wait which panel? Which page? It's uh, page eleven, top panel. Page eleven. Okay, yeah, punching yeah. Punching out Thor, and the hel- and the helmet still stays on. Oh, Thor never loses his helmet. <laughs> and I love that beast, uh, not beast, but Vision trying to uh, phase into him, and it's just not working. Right, and he, and he says, "Well, if you can't phase into me, then that means I can punch you." Yeah, but you can definitely tell on the bottom of page eleven again. It 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 just looks like the inks are. It, it looks rushed. Yeah, and it could be. It that could be something that, that again you don't know what the schedule is. It could it could have been. But beyond all that, even though it looks rushed, it's still beautiful. It's still yeah. It still yeah. flows well. It's still it's still a great action beat. Uh, yeah, you know, action scenes. It's um, I thought that on page fourteen and fifteen when Doctor Sturdy comes up and tells him basically says oh well you're aging you know you're aging too fast i felt that should have been moved back probably in issue two i thought if if that had been revealed before he started looking for thor's hammer yeah that would be a stronger beat that that then he's spending all this time trying to find thor and reach his hammer because he thinks he's dying yeah i think they i think they could have stretched this out to be several more issues and I, i wish they had I think three issues for this story just kind of did a little bit disservice. They could have done at least one more issue, you know, easily yeah. two. It could have been done. They probably could have done it mid six if you wanted to uh, stretch it out some more. But of course, the um, and also the reveal that the doctor tells him that he's dying. Mm-hmm. That later we find out that that's not true. That he made it up. I didn't understand that motivation of the doctor because it seems like he. I know he seems like he's going to tell. He wants Nefarious to stop, but. From the beginning, when he first comes out, and he and he wants and needs to tell him, it seems it just seems to me that they're they're writing it that that's going to be a red herring that you think, oh, yeah, he really is dying, and then at the end, he find no, I was just lying to him so that he would try well, to try I to mean, get him to guy, stop what he was doing. That guy was a Nazi scientist. You know, that's one thing they made clear in the first story. Is that guy yeah. was a Nazi scientist. He's an evil bastard. He's a horrible guy, and he's going to take his shots whenever he can get them. I mean, he says, didn't he say he's dying himself? I and don't, you no, know, I know he I, apparently he dies at the end. He dies long. He lives long enough to tell Yellow Jacket what was going on, but then he dies. But oh yeah, that's right. He says only I know how to control your aging process. 
So it's like he's trying to manipulate him into to taking him so that he can, you know, basically remove his powers. Right, and it just seems like he's trying to get him to stop, so he will try to get a cure, yeah. and that will, then they give him a chance to probably strip him of his powers. Okay, so page 17 here, the very middle panel, the vision, what is those lines behind him? I, I mean, is know. that... Those are just, uh, I don't know what those are, that is... Um... I mean, was that mood lines? I don't know. It's uh, (laughs) a mood drawing it. Mood uh, mood lines? I don't know. It's um, very, very unusual. It's like, I guess, to underscore the vision's own uh, mechanical way of being. Yeah, and and they do make mention that after he's come out of this coma, that he seems more robotic than he has been. But I do do say I love the way that the vision decides to take him out. Yeah, yeah. He knows how Wando look. I mean, she looks as dopey as, as she's supposed to appear to be. You know, the, the the wasp is trying to wake her up, and she's definitely got a you know head stuck on the pillow, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Kind of look at her. Like, what, what's going on? That's that's pretty cool. And then the way the wasp came flying into that moment there, I think that was an afterthought by the anchor because that doesn't look at all like Burn. Oh, that uh, having her look like she's shrinking down. Yeah, or growing, 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 up. growing yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. That 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 whole panel, in fact, doesn't even look like Burn drew it. Well, again, well, even the vision in that panel you were talking about that he has got the uh, the mood lines behind him. That yeah. doesn't really look like a burned face. That looks no, no. It definitely looks like some something else. And and the, the cap shield down there at the bottom, it's not even round. Or the, the at least the the, yeah. the start <laughs> the stripes and everything are on it are yeah, not round. It's not. It's not out of proportion and out of shape and and everything. It's very uh, yeah. That 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 panel there again was rushed. Uh, definitely definitely rushed. And then we go on to the next page, and Captain America is just so beat up. And everything, and I'm trying to remember where he got so beat up. He's, I mean, is that all the way from the when they dropped the house on or the building on him? It's got to be because you don't you don't see because uh, once Thor kind of steps in, the other Avengers were kind of gone, so you don't see. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it, it's you know the previous issue. I, I remember Nefari came into the Avengers Mansion and they all got started in the fight again, but I don't remember what it was that took Cap out. It could have been. And really, this this is uh, just so he can inspire. Pass, yeah, Wonder pass Man. the shield on the under Wonder yeah, Man. So Wonder Man can go out and try to try to uh, redeem yeah. himself and be the Avenger he thinks he, he be the Avenger he doesn't think he is. Yeah, but if you look at if you look at Cap and all that, that is that's burn work right there. Yeah. Every 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 bit of rippling muscle, the 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 motion lines around him that show that he is struggling as hard as he can to get up. That's that's you know definitely burn and. In the fir- in the the second panel there, the third panel not so much. It it, it, it that looked more inked than than pencil. Yeah, because it just doesn't doesn't have the fine detail on the it. Shield looks a little wonky there too. Yeah. Well, and even the on the bottom panel twenty two where Nefarious is just laying waste to the city. Yeah. That destruction doesn't quite look. That cloud doesn't look like burn. The melted, I guess, skyscraper doesn't look quite. Doesn't look quite. Makes you uh, think of um, early CGI in some of the movies, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, it looks a little like you said, scratchy. It looks a little. Yeah. So you know, then then this is his, you know, his nefarious is decides. Well, he he he's dying, so he's just going to basically lay waste to everything and try and kill as many people as he can. Take out as many people as he can. How many did he get though? I mean, I never saw or heard anywhere if anybody died. I mean, it's oh, you never hear casualty. They were yeah. they were talking about casualty rates in uh, comics like this back then, but. Um, if this was a an ultimate comic, you'd have you know deaths would be in the thousands, but or if it was Man of Steel, it'd be millions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, 
Not that we want to pick on that movie. Yeah, yeah. I think we're really taking the piss out of this one, you know? <laughs> well, this one, it's of the three issues, this has the weakest art. Yeah, that's true. That's and true. It's still a it's still a fun story. It's still uh I mean I think that the little kind of Twilight Zone trick ending I don't quite buy, but I do like his uh, him kind of going crazy and and uh, the rest of them having to uh, try to take him down as much as much as they can. And then I just love the fact that the vision just vision goes up goes a mile up in the air, increases his density to maximum, and just basically hits him. You know, to borrow from the Avengers movie recently, just hits him like a meteorite. Yeah, that's what it takes to take him out. Whew, that's pretty cool. And once again, on that last page there, you're seeing. Uh... The rubble in the background really doesn't look like Burns, but all the foreground characters, um, you know, definitely definitely are the Burn characters, except the yellow jacket in that middle panel looks, again, almost like, like an Infantino or, or something else. Yeah, it's a little, yeah, it's a little combination of, of Burn and, some, and something else. So, again, I, I, just from looking at this, this had to be either he needed help or it was rushed, and he was just doing quick breakdowns. And because he had, to, say he was doing three books. I yeah. mean, yeah, he had a lot going on. Now the the bottom panels there, of course, talk about a storyline that will come up that won't that that will disappear. I think for nearly fifteen issues and then show up around issue one eighty one. Now that uh, is that is that is supposed to be Magneto, right? No, that that's Django Maximoff. Oh, okay. Now, because first you you know you think that Wanda and Pietro are the child the child of George Frank the Wizard and 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 what was her what was the lady's name the Lady Liberty or whatever what uh, Lady she Liberty was. I believe yeah and then uh, this guy Django Maximoff comes and they believe that he is their father and uh, you know of course we we find out years later. And I don't know why, you know, I don't know why they had to reveal it. It was one of those things where it was one of those long standing, it's right in front of your face and they'll throw out a bone every now and then. But why did they just have to go and reveal it, that they're the, they're children of Magneto? Well, from my understanding, I thought they were always considered from the very beginning when they were the Masters of Evil, if they were considered the children of Magneto. They, they, he, it was never revealed to him until the Vision and Scarlet Witch miniseries where Wanda had had the, the babies. And mm. Magneto comes to see the babies, and that's when he tells them, I'm your father. father. You know, and, and, and it, you know, it was never revealed up to that point that he was their father. Now, the biggest notion that we ever got, aside from Pietro's you know, uh, uh, looking like Magneto, yeah, was in the the issues later here, and I believe Michelinie is doing the the writing, and Byrne is doing the artwork from 181 to 191, where they did the the storyline where Wanda and Pietro go off with Django to the you know Europe, and they wind up at Wondegore Mountain, and Bova the the cow lady tells them basically, yeah, I was there when some woman came running out of the snow named Magda, Magda, Magda yeah. And gave birth to you guys at Wondegore Mountain, and all this stuff happens, and that's why you've got the powers that you have. Well, we know that Magneto's wife was named Magda, and that she ran away from him when she found out what he was. And in classic X-Men, I think it was where they had the backstories that were done with John Bolton doing the artwork. And uh, they showed Magneto in the concentration camps and using his powers and everything and getting them out. I, th I think, you know, at, at that point he reveals himself. He kills a whole bunch of people right in front of his wife. And so she runs off and, you know, thinking him a monster. Yeah. I guess it's one of those things where you, where it's kind of revealed later on of, of, of a truth that you think that it's always been that way. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I think we've beat this one to death. I, I, I think, you know, the things that we do know is that it probably could have been a longer story, longer story <clears throat> that the, uh, they really did rush the artwork and the inking on it. Uh, page 26, for instance, is probably one of the most condensed pages I've seen in a lot of comic books as far as all the action that should be happening there. There's just so much going on. And then they got a teaser at the very end that, you know, they, they give and then you don't necessarily see the payoff on it for a good 15 issues. So a year and a half before well, that, that storyline pays off. That's that long form storytelling. But. but, you know, the thing is, is that they were always critical of Claremont for doing that. And then here's Sh- Shooter. And, and I guess, you know, I don't know if, if Byrne had a hand in it, but they didn't pick the storyline back up until Byrne returned to the book. And that may be something that shooter wanted to bring back once burn came back and maybe same thing with uh gyrich because i don't think that they really have gyrich do much until 181 and that's when he puts the hammer down on the avengers takes away their security clearance and yeah and starts makes them pare down the roster and they have to get everybody out of the building yeah i'm interested i have i've not i have not read that one either so i'm interested in uh Oh, um, it's a, so I, I find it to be a really, really good run. I, it was, of course, too short, but, you know, he's doing X-Men at the time. So he's doing, like, the two big books then, X-Men yeah. and Avengers, and it's just like, wow. Well, and the amount of, if you look at the amount of work that he's putting into the X-Men, that you think that would be, that would, you know, just to do one book like that. I mean, nowadays, to do one artist to do one book like that a month would take all their time, and he was doing that kind of work on, you know, multiple books. Yeah. But Byrne has a reputation, at least I've read, that he's a very fast artist. He can, he can, I always heard Kirby was really quick. Kirby could do uh, two or three, four pages a day. And I think well, Kirby uh, did it out of necessity. He knew that the more books that he did, the more money he'd get paid. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, he, he was really, you know, a work count in doing that. And I wish that he hadn't had to do that because if you look at Kirby's pencils when he's only doing one or two books a month as opposed to however many he did. They were so beautiful, but you look at at the when he's sitting there doing five books a month. It's just you know it's it's not the the best work that he can put out. No, look at his once once Marvel got up and running and <clears throat> he had more he had more help. How well his how well his art improved on Fantastic Four. Yeah, once he wasn't doing every book they were producing. Between him and Ditko, they were putting everything out. Did you ever see his origin story for Etrigan the Demon? I've never read any Etrigan. Uh, the, the the origin story for Etrigan the Demon is one of my favorite Kirby books, just for the way he did his art in, in that, and it's it's a great piece. I've got a a, a big uh, Kirby coffee table book I'll have to bring with me next time I uh, next time we get together. Oh, sounds like a lot of fun. Any last thoughts on this uh, this trio of stories? No, I thought it was fun. It was a really fun story. Uh, I thought it was an intriguing uh, villain. I know uh, he goes on to. Um, I think he he goes on and to become like a being of pure energy, I believe. Um, well, I, you know, the thing is, I know that that apparently they wiped the power out of him. They killed him in Iron Man, and then somehow he got brought back. And then, of course, in the Avengers, when Kurt Busiek and George Perez were doing him, you know, he he came back and all that. You know, apparently after all the hibernation and whatnot. I think it was retcon though, because in Iron Man he shriveled up into a really old antiquated thing and uh it was one of those madam mask stories because he's madam mask's father right right and that's how he wind wound up getting killed is you know they're doing a whole bunch of stuff and iron man wound up doing something to save a whole bunch of people that wound up crushing his coffin or, or something along those lines it's been a long time since i read that so i have to go back and look at it but yeah i i i thought that that this nefaria 
was really, really cool. And they probably could have done more with it. And we didn't see that, at least for a good, you know, 20 plus years. And then when they finally got around to it, you had, you know, they they took the human out of it. You know, they, they took the human out of Wonder Man and him and uh, Power Man there, who Power Man has been known as Power Man, uh, the smuggler, Goliath. Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to remember there was one of the, I think there was one of the name they had for him, but he was part wasn't he part of that whole, uh, what was it? Thunderbolts or wildcats or crossover. He might've been books? in his Thunderbolts. I, I seem he, to remember him as a smuggler. He was in, uh, he was a Peter villain. Parker. Yeah. He, he was a Par- villain for Spider-Man. So yeah, that, that was my first story with him that I actually remember reading was that Peter Parker, Spider-Man where they were going up against, I think some Japanese guys. On a, uh, there were there were there went to some dinner boat restaurant that was a kabuki theater, and he had lost pretty much ninety percent of his powers. Power. He, he was you know maybe able to lift a thousand pounds, maybe you know in Captain America's strength. Well, that's what it seems in, at the beginning class. of this story. His his strength has been very it's been greatly reduced to the point yeah. where that's why he was so willing to uh, go along with Nefarious. I always wondered how Luke Cage could have taken him because if he had been as strong as Wonder Man. And then Luke Cage has never been able to lift more than say a ton. Yeah, and look, but it, probably maybe in fighting skill. Yeah, <clears throat> but, but then again, they didn't. They you know before the official handbook of the Marvel Universe came out, before any of those came out, knowing the strength classes of all those characters was always a little difficult. I know that in some books they'd put out a couple things here and there. I think Marvel Fanfare or uh, What If had put out a couple scales where you got to see the characters and who was in whatever power scale. And it was a lot different than what they finally came up with in the official handbook of the Marvel universe, at least the second volume, which I thought was the best one out of all of them. It was, it was certainly more detailed. Yeah. And they loved using Burns work in the the second volume. He he, did the, uh, he did the cover. I think the, the wraparound covers for all of them, didn't he? Yeah. Yes, he did. I've got the, for that first volume of Mohatmu, where it wasn't like a profile shot of everybody moving left to right. It was everybody kind of jumping kind of at the camera. Yeah. I've got that as a poster that's five feet by five feet by five feet. Oh, cool. That I can't put up now. I don't have room for it, but I've, I, it's in, in my toy room. But I've, I used to have that up, and it's just basically all those covers just put together. Oh, wow. That, that'd be great to have. Yeah, I ordered yeah. it. I don't know. I ordered it years and years and years ago. But well, I think maybe we should uh, take a break here, run somebody's promo, and then come back and go over emails. Okay. Alrighty. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at 2TrueFreaks.com. 
Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Desperate breaches of geekdom here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan the Toy Geek, Scott the award winning radio host, Jeff Scott's Minion, and Ron. Just Ron. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. And we're back. <laughs> okay, uh, we actually have uh, emails. And, um, you know, I'd gone out and uh, sent requests to uh, several of our buddies out there that, uh, that have given us so much over the years. And uh, the first person to respond to me was Trentus Magnus. And so here we go. Tim and Brian, it filled our hearts with pride to discover that the two of you are intent on creating a burn-centric podcast. Apart from swelling our ever-growing ranks of podcasting vassals, it's an opportunity to shine a light on one of the industry's brightest talents. Put simply, it is our unswerving belief that Byrne is in the top tier of comic creators to debut in the mid-late 70s. Byrne is of the same caliber as George Perez. He's even on the same level to us. In fact, he might even be higher up the totem pole, considering his bibliography runneth over with awesomeness, creativity, and originality. Now, I'm wondering there, I'm just going to stop for a moment, like Trentus would, when he says he's even on the same level to us. Maybe, maybe he's talking about himself, because... I don't know if I'm on Trentus's level at this point. Do you think you are? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. we'll move on. We'll move on from there. <laughs> our first request for John Byrne material, as must be common among our other our other listeners, is a retrospective and analysis of his run on the Fantastic Four. This is primarily because we have no real context of understanding for the FF. Thus, your show should be a companion or introduction to our journey through his work on the FF. After completing it, it might be worth it to move backwards in his resume and do a respect retrospective on his X-Men work. With a creator like Byrne, you've got years worth of shows built up and decades worth of material to review. We eagerly look forward to what's coming and wish you all the best. Also, were you planning on using planning to use Rage Against the Machines bomb track as your theme song? Your Emperor Magnus. Now, uh, thank you. Thank you, Trentus Magnus. We really appreciate that. Uh, that amazing missive that you've written there. Now, um, as far as uh, you know, the Fantastic Four and and other bits, what we've decided, we're, we're definitely not going to do an index show. What we want to do is we want to, like we did here, pick one spot and cover it for the episode. And, and so you'll see us go into Fantastic Four and probably cover a two or maybe three issue run or you know something like that. You know, if if we can do multiple issues a, a show, we 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 definitely want to. Uh, and sometimes we'll spotlight that one special issue that just seems to to you know bring everything together. So um, I know that one of the future shows that we uh, 
What was it you were asking to do for the next one? I think for our next show, we would I would like to cover uh, his OMAC work. Yes. DC. OMAC. One Man Army. Series. And that was a four-issue series, and I think we could probably do it justice on, on our next show and, and look over that. And, and, you know, moving forward, we can do things like go to the Fantastic Four and look at a certain uh, number of issues. Because I, I know that, you know, from the work that he did early on in the early 100s, that there he was working with Joe Sinnott. And, uh, you know, that, that the, 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 the book had a definite look then as opposed to when he took over at 232. And he ran that all the way up to 293. And as the book went on, it got a different look as time went on, uh, even before he, he started using different inkers, whether it be Al Gordon or Jerry Ordway, uh, you know, on there. So, and then uh, Terry Austin doing that one beautiful issue in there where they brought back uh, Jean Grey. Um, there's, there, yeah, there's so much there that we can, that we can go over. And obviously, we don't want to do a whole run of, uh, you know, a decade or, or you know, s- several, uh, ye- uh, excuse me, several years. I mean, he's on there five years, but we don't want to sit there and try to cover like a whole year's worth of books in one episode, obviously, or make it an index of that entire run. I think we'll move back and forth and uh, try to try to pick those moments that we think are uh, really good to to highlight on. Yeah, I think we can do. We'll pick, and I've got some notes. I'm sure you do too about some particular story arcs in there. I my feeling was not to jump right into his most famous stuff right away. The Fantastic mm-hmm. Four, X Men, uh, Man of Steel. There's certainly stuff in there I want to cover, but I wanted to just jump into that because people are so used to that. I wanted to cover some more of the obscure stuff, maybe. Yeah, and you know the thing is, is that we've already gotten uh, some some requests to be guest on the show, and we definitely want to include uh, anybody that that we can to that. I think that we could even make a really good special out of maybe the Dark Phoenix saga or Man of Steel, uh, and and bring in some really good guest stars for those you know landmark ones that. Uh, that will hit as time yeah, goes on. I, I think I know who wants to come in and talk on Man of Steel, but um, <laughs> well, there's a couple there. <laughs> there's a couple. I, I, yeah. One I know of for sure, and, and he should get first pick. But um, yes, okay. Moving on. Let's see. Our next email comes from Andrew Leland of Hey Kids Comics. Hi, fellas. Just a quick note about your impending burn podcast. I think this is a great idea, and reckon the Namer series from the '90s is overdue for a reevaluation. All the best, Andrew. Now, uh, I, I don't mean to try and do his accent for some reason that just kind of came through a little bit. I wasn't really trying to do it, and I, I kind of heard it there. So, uh, Andrew, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I, I did not mean to offend you in any way if that did offend you. Uh, having said that, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the Namer series. Uh, I do have my thoughts about Byrne and his, uh, his work in the art, his use of Zipatone. And, uh, you know, some of the, some of the detail work then is, uh, part of that, that little bit of a slant as he starts moving towards in, you know, into the nineties. Um, so yeah, definitely want to, want to cover Namer at some point in there. Like, I'm not sure if we want to do the invader storyline or, or, you know, hit something earlier than that. Uh, the first issue alone probably, probably, de- you know, de- deserves a, a good long discussion. Yeah, and I, I haven't read Namor since it was on the stands. Um, yeah, that's definitely something I think needs to be that, along with his next men. I think that needs to be. Oh <clears throat> yeah, needs to be brought up. Uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of Marvel team up. There's a few of those I'd like to go over that are, um, and you know, hit on some of his Star Trek stuff. 
Oh yeah, definitely, definitely want to talk some Star Trek, and I know that there's some people that want to talk some burn Star Trek, so uh, that definitely opens the door for for a lot of discussion and maybe a couple special shows. Yeah, and, and a lot of that can be left open to uh, you know possibly if the guest let them pick what you know what do you you want to come on what do you want to cover. Yeah, well, also, you guys out there listening to us, what do you want us to talk about? I mean, is there a particular uh, run of issues, an arc, uh, a storyline that, that you want us to talk about? We want to talk about, you know, everything. We're talking Iron Fist. We're talking Space 1999, uh, the Rog 2000 stuff he did in E-Man. Rog or Raj? I always get that mixed up. Is it Raj? Because I, I know it's kind of a tribute to Roger Stern and another Roger. I think it's Raj. Raj, Raj 2000, yeah. But uh, we want to know what you guys want to want to hear about. What you guys want to know? What we're thinking? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so anyway, we, yeah, and we're certainly we want we want feedback because again, this is our, our first time to do this. So we want you know good or bad. Let us know if if you think we're terrible. Let us know what we can do to fix it. Uh, if you think we're great, then let us know. You know, we'll it'll make us feel a little better about ourselves. So uh, we we certainly want. Uh, all kinds of feedback. We welcome everything, or suggestions, well, or storylines, anything. Can we steer away from the the feedback that just says you suck? Well, yeah, and yeah. If it's I mean, just if, gonna... if, if you have a complaint, please tell us what it is. Yes, yes, uh, yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, please be specific about your complaint. <laughs> yes. All right. Our uh, last email tonight comes from Paul Spataro and of Back to the Bins, and he writes, "Brian and Tim, or Tim and Brian, let the debate begin." Now, I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, <laughs> you know, Tim and I have known each other for just a very uh, few months. Uh, I got wind of Tim by, you know, as, as I listened to a lot of the podcasts, I heard a lot of letters from Tim and realizing that he lived not but like half an hour away from me, that we probably have a lot in common. And so I, I messaged you on Facebook, wasn't it what I did? Uh, I, think, I believe I Facebook, was, yeah. yeah. And, and said, you know, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if we did a burn podcast because nobody else is doing it right now? And uh, so Tim and I have not had enough time to get to know each other really, really well. I mean, we've talked for hours on a wide variety of subjects, as you can tell, uh, that we have, uh, you know, some similar experiences, some not so similar. We have a lot of similar tastes, and I'm sure, sure we're going to find some not so similar. But right now, because we're just getting to learn who each other is, we're being as polite as the goofy gophers from the old Warner Brothers cartoons. Oh, right after you. No, no, I insist after you, you know, not wanting to step over on each other. So I don't think there'll be a debate anytime sooner or later of who goes first. Uh, I think, uh, you know, what's on second and I don't know is on third base and we'll yeah, go from there. I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't see anything like that in, in the foreseeable future being a problem. <laughs> yes. All right. Continuing with Paul's letter. I was very happy to get the message that you're starting a new podcast focusing on John Byrne. As a big Byrne fan, I'm really looking forward to listening. While I expect to enjoy your take on Byrne Classics, X-Men, Fantastic Four, and Superman, I'm particularly looking forward to hearing what you have to say about his somewhat less heralded work, such as The Champions, Namor, Marvel Team-Up, Iron Fist, etc. It's probably a good idea to have steer cleared of being an index show and cover whatever moves you at the given moment. I know that I'm very glad that what we did with Avengers Spotlight, for the record, I was thinking Index Show and was outvoted by Bill and Scott. In retrospect, it's being one of the few times I'll admit to being... Uh, to being... Uh, what, what am I saying? I think you're saying, Paul, that you were... Anyway, I'm really looking forward to hearing your show. Give me a holler if there's anything that I can do to help you guys. Best, Paul Spataro. Yes, get this guy out of here that keeps putting something over my throat. What is... <laughs> 
Paul's never wrong. We know that. Did you say wrong? Yeah, that's what I said. Paul's never wrong. <laughs> okay. I'll agree with that. Uh, that being said, that is the last of our emails. If you do want to write to us, you can reach us at gotta get burned at gmail.com. That's G O T T A G E T B Y R N E D at gmail.com. You got anything else for us, Tim? I don't think so. I think we've, uh, and this may be typical of a longer show than normal for us. I don't think we'll be uh, rambling on this this long, but this is our, you know, our first show. So we have to kind of get a lot of it out there and let you know who we are, what we want to do. And we'll try to iron out some of these wrinkles as our other shows come in. But um, I think, I think that's it. I think, I think this is a good first start. I think, uh, hopefully we're going to, people are going to enjoy listening to this. Uh, If not, tell us what we're doing wrong and let us, uh, let us know what we can do. You know, we're doing this for ourselves, but we, you know, we don't want to be just two guys talking to each other. We want to be able to share this with other people. So, yeah, absolutely. And and you know, the thing is, is that listening to the other podcasts, whether it's from Crisis to Crisis or any of the Two True Freaks podcasts or you know anything else that's out there, um, they've inspired us to do stuff. And and we we've come to know these guys um, as friends. And the thing is, you know, I, I mean, Tim here, he's met Scott, uh, Scott Gardner. Uh, he, met him, he met him at Disney World in Orlando. But I, I haven't met any of these people face-to-face. Uh, I've just, you know, listened to them talk to me on the internet for the last two years. And it's like coming home. It's like sitting there and chatting with my friends about the things that we want to talk about. And I really wanted to be a part of that because they give me so much enjoyment in the times when uh, I need it. Uh, I do a job that sometimes can be tedious, and so therefore it gives me the ability to to do that. Or when I have to do a lot of driving, that's what I use this show for, is to to fill in the blank spaces. And uh, these guys help do it for us. Hopefully we can do it for them and yeah. for you. Yeah, here, here. I mean, Two Two Freaks is the reason why I don't listen to the radio music anymore. I don't. I listen to podcasts almost exclusively now. Yeah, same here. <laughs> and there, there, there was, I think their Star Trek Monthly Monday was the first show I started listening to. So this all could be blamed on them. So, uh, you know, but it's also, uh, I think, Scott Gardner's Get Off Your Butt and Do a Podcast. Uh, yeah. That's inspired many podcasts on the Two Two Freaks, and uh, we fall in that category. So, you know, hopefully all right. we, we're doing something good here. All right. Well, for Third Degree Burn, I'm Brian Hughes. I'm Tim Elliott. Thank you, and have a great day. Good night. Hey, everybody. Brian here, and Tim is here with me. Say hi. Hi. I just want to take a moment here to thank the uh, two true freaks, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, for for taking us in. And Scott, definitely a big, huge thank you from us, because uh, without you, we wouldn't have uh, the name that we have. Uh, We'd thrown a lot of names around, and when Scott gave us Third Degree Burn after we really thought about it, that was just the perfect name to use. Don't you agree? I do agree. I, once he came, we had a few we were batting around with, but once we heard that, we just knew that was the right one to go with. Yeah. So, Scott, a huge, huge thank you from us. Also, you know, thanks to uh, Paul Spataro and Andrew Leyland and Trentus Magnus. And who else sent us uh, emails? And uh, Andy Leyland. Andy Leyland. And, you know, Luke Giaconetti has been uh, helpful with the hints. And, and just everybody, Gene Hendricks, everybody on the Two True Freaks family has just yeah. been super supportive and been behind us 100%. So we can't thank any, uh, all of them. We won't thank yeah, everybody associated with Two True Freaks. And Dr. Bill, Dr. Bill too, yeah. But uh, hey, thanks a lot, guys. We really do appreciate it. We hope that you enjoyed our show. You made us. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you for listening to Third Degree Burn. 
Third Degree Burn is a Texas Thunder production and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows and can be found at tutufreaks.com. All comments, feedback, complaints, stock tips, and recipes can be sent to gottogetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. And if you drop us a line, good or bad, we will read it on the show. And if you're interested in any of the books covered on the show, please head on over to tutufreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. This won't cost you anything extra, but it really helps keep the show on the air. So until next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. All right, I'll be mayor.